Hello and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. I'm Alex. I'm Julio, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Help promote the algorithm and spread the word. You can also find us on SoundCloud to subscribe and review. And don't forget to visit our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Follow us on Twitter at Contrarian Prime. And to like us on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. And if you have the willpower to keep up with our pretentious ramblings, you can follow us individually at Contrarian Alex for myself and at Avnio for Julio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Now, time for the podcast. When you're ready, I'm good to go. All right. Hello, and welcome back to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, uh, joined remotely by my co-host and friend, Julio. For the second time in The Contrarians history, remotely. Yes, so for the second time recording remotely, and unfortunately for the foreseeable future, uh, this is going to be the setup that we have. I'm set up in our usual recording studio, and I believe, Julio, are you uh, in your office, your bedroom? Where are you at in your home home right now? Uh, my, uh, I guess, spare bedroom slash office. It's where uh, I've recorded before whenever I've recorded with other podcasts, whenever I cheated on you on our podcast marriage. <laughs> so it's it's a reliable setup. I think that uh, we shall we shall prevail. Oh yeah, I mean, one, the show must go on, and two, I'm glad that we have uh, the opportunity to do this to at least occupy a little bit of my time per week. Uh, I'm not <laughs> okay. sure you, you would agree with the the sentiment of you're glad we did this, considering the movie we chose. But you know, we're gonna try to pr- power on through it as we as best we can. I think um, that I, I think that the fact that the universe decided to make it to where this movie, this one specific movie is the one I had to watch on my own. Uh, <laughs> you know, it just proves that we can do anything from here on. Yes. I don't know. I, I fear nothing. Throw your best <laughs> or your worst at me. Uh, so before we go any further, we got to pick, uh, uh, what character from contagion do you want to be? Cause I, I, we need to pick characters <laughs> and uh, also disclaimer. Uh, what's going on in the world right now is very bad and very concerning. Obviously, comedy is a way that I cope with any type of trauma in life. So when we joke about it, please don't think we're not taking it seriously. At the same time, fortunately, uh, it's not quite as bad as Contagion yet. But I do think that we should uh, both take ownership of a character from that movie until we're done with this pandemic. Yes. Uh, yeah. Basically, we are giving you reasons to stay at home. Just you know, I know, I know you're bored out there but just don't go out you have uh, our show plenty of shows to listen to for free so do so uh i haven't seen contagion in a long time i know i am not uh jude law that would be alex jones he's he's the jude law (laughs) character i'm not i'm certainly not profiting from this so i'm not any i'm not on that side uh i'm also not in denial so i'm not matt damon Mm. uh and i'm still alive so i'm not going to paltrow uh, I'm not actively looking for a solution, uh, so I'm not Lawrence Fishburne. Yes. Uh, I kind of got fucked by the system, so I want to say uh, I, I probably... Who gets... Is it uh, the French actress from... Marion uh, Cotillard? Yeah, I think it might be Marion Cotillard. Fair enough, fair enough. Uh, 
Um, who, are, who are you? You're Lawrence Fishburne, aren't you? Uh, I mean, I'm not going to find the solution. I think I'm Lawrence Fishburne in the sense that I can't be trusted with privy information. Like if someone told me <laughs> something important, I would get rid of it right away. Um, maybe Brian Cranston, just kind of someone who's just trying to stay afloat and do his job through this and, you know, do the best he can. So uh, I may have to revisit it to see if I can up that. I mean, I'm a super emotional guy, too. So I could be Matt Damon because he starts crying at the end of the movie. But, the, uh, the thing I remember the most is uh, it was in the trailer, uh, and then it it happened in the movie exactly the way it happened in the trailer, which sometimes you know I expected maybe they they would cut it a different way. But when they're trying to tell him that his wife is dead, and uh, and he's like, okay, but uh, I need to talk to her. And like, no sir, yeah, she's dead, she's passed. Okay, yeah, I understand. Can I talk to her? <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah, that sounds yeah. Uh, like my boss two weeks ago. <laughs> All right, so. You'll stick with Marion Cotillard. I'll stick with Brian Cranston. I might revisit it and see if there's any uh, updating that needs to be done to that. Next um, next recording, let's see if we have updated our characters, either because our lives have changed or uh, or because uh, the movie, revisiting the movie, gave us a new perspective. Fuck, I, I really don't want to be Kate Winslet, so let's hope it doesn't come to that. No, absolutely not. Um, and but like I'll, you know discussion about the society if you are marion cotillard depending on how long this quarantine goes i may look at you like you are marion cotillard the next time i see you <laughs> uh, okay so uh from one series of jesting to um another and that this podcast was supposed to be our wrestlemania bonus episode this will come out on april 1st and wrestlemania will still happen because Vince McMahon is Vince McMahon and Vince McMahon is Vince McMahon is something that we will talk about in depth about this movie. Um, so this will still coincide with the WrestleMania weekend as WrestleMania will go on at the WWE performance center in Orlando, Florida in front of no fans. They've been running, uh, their weekly shows still with matches and replaying of classic matches in an empty, uh, pretty much a big gym they own where they have a ring set up anyway. Um, so that's, I guess, the plan for WrestleMania. I have no idea how much money they're going to have to pay Brock Lesnar to fly from Canada to Orlando to wrestle in front of nobody. But So are they are they wrestling with masks? N- no. Uh, they're doing it over two nights this year. It's going to be Saturday and Sunday um, because I'm assuming they want to contain or keep as few people in as possible, but they're only running it with essential personnel i mean oscar might wear her mask but that's because she always wears a mask to the <laughs> ring anyway but you know the evil genius that is vince is uh, i think this fits in with this movie vince is right more times than he's wrong i think we're dealing with a massive wrong today but for the uh the intents and purposes of wrestlemania my guess is that he's going to try to sell the broadcast to nbc ESPN or Fox since there's nothing else going on right now in the world and he will make a shit ton of money and the ratings will be huge because there's nothing else to watch because Vince even in times of global struggle and panic he's always just thinking about the dollar at the end of the day so right now it's a pay-per-view yeah right now as of right now it'll be on the WWE Net- I, I, it'll be on the WWE Network regardless but I believe it's a pay-per-view right now but yesterday they announced they just made a deal with ESPN because ESPN so starved for content uh, that they made a deal with the WWE that they now have the rights to like old WrestleManias so they can just show those when they need to fill, you know, gaps right now in their programming. Yeah. ESPN 
complete sidebar. I had no idea how much I took sports for granted in my life. Last weekend <laughs> when there was no sports to watch, I was like, what the fuck am I supposed to do with my time? Yeah, you you would not be surprised to learn that I didn't even notice. Yeah, well, that shot I'm glad I was sitting down when you told me that. Uh but yeah, like today on ESPN, I think they're doing like a 12-hour block of just classic UFC content. Um, so I guess that's what they're going to try to do with WWE. But getting back to the matter at hand here with this episode, it was, you know, we've had a series of WrestleMania bonus episodes. Uh, in the past, under happier circumstances, typically when I would be traveling to said city uh, for WrestleMania, um, Unfortunately, I had no plans of going to Tampa this year, so I do have a lot of really good friends that did, and I kind of feel bad they're they're um, you know out there some of their money, and uh, they were all really looking forward to it. But obviously, the, the situation is much greater than pro wrestling. But in the past, we visited such films as Ready to Rumble and the Glow documentary. Uh, today, for this WrestleMania bonus episode, we're tackling the 1989, uh, I, man, I can't even call it like a Saturday matinee. I'm trying to think of the most positive way I can frame this movie. You could just go neutral and just call it the Hulk Hogan vehicle. The Hulk Hogan vehicle, no holds barred, um, that was, again, released in 1989 amidst the, uh, popularity of Hulkamania in an attempt to capitalize on that and was directed by Thomas J. Wright and written by Dennis Hack Hacken, I believe is how you pronounce the last name. Uh, there are massive quotation marks around written by uh, and, <laughs> and in real talk, we'll discuss who this movie was actually written by. Um, but if this is your first time listening to the contrarians and you thank you for making it about 10 minutes in before we actually uh, describe our gimmick and what we're here to do. Uh, we rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine is what we like to say. We find a movie that is highly rated on Rotten Tomatoes and, you know, knock it down a few pegs and find a conversely find a movie that is a nasty green splotch and find the positive merit in it. And that accounts for the first portion of our podcast uh, titled Contrarian's Corner. If ever you're curious of how we really feel about the movies that we review, stick around for the second half of the podcast, uh, the aptly titled Real Talk. Being that No Holds Barred is 11%, a shockingly high rating for this movie <laughs> on Rotten Tomatoes, we will be uh, arguing its positive merit. Um, and this will be one of those times where real talk is guaranteed to be a completely different take than Contrarian's Corner. I, I would hope so. I had assumed so going into this, and based on just some of our text exchange and uh, dialogue off air, it, it seems that's definitely going to be the case. So. Yeah, I usually try to keep how I feel about the movie kind of under wraps, so it's kind of a reveal when we get to real talk, but I was, uh, as I was watching this movie, I was not being shy uh, about how I felt on social media, so uh, I imagine <laughs> at least a portion of our listeners already know that no Holds Barred was not quite uh, the movie for me, to put it mildly. <laughs> I don't know who it was for besides Vince McMahon and Hulk Hogan, to be honest with you. Um, so being that it's 11%, that means the majority of people did not like it. Julio, what were the critics saying about this one? All right, so lots of green splotches. It's 11% rotten. Uh, start with Gene Siskel. Legendary Gene Siskel from the Chicago Tribune. Yeah. <laughs> he watched it. He watched it and he reviewed it. And his quote is, The film is utterly lacking in the campy quality of the World Wrestling Federation telecasts. Which makes it sound like he appreciates the campy quality of the WWF 
telecasts. Um, did you know that Siskel was kind of a fan? Uh, I mean, at this point in time, you couldn't avoid it. Um, they had a program on NBC called Saturday Night's Main Event that would beat Saturday Night Live in the ratings <laughs> in terms of like quality. Like Hulk Hogan wrestled Andre the Giant on Saturday Night's Main Event in 1988, and it was something absolutely absurd. Like, I want to say it was like in the neighborhood of maybe like 20 million, 30 million people watched it. And so Hulk Hogan was unavoidable at this point. He was a literal pop culture star. Um, and so I understand that Gene Siskel at some point, probably flipping through his TV would come across, you know, a Hulk Hogan match or a Hulk Hogan promo on TV. And, uh, I agree completely with what he was saying. That was the appeal of Hulk Hogan was that he was so fucking absurd and ridiculous. And, you know, this literal living comic book character that you couldn't help but find it infectious. Whereas, and this, they try to make that uh, reality-based. And, you know, uh, depending on your point of view, it might not have worked out. This was reality-based? <laughs> okay. Again, yeah. stick around for real talk, and we'll talk about where <laughs> who thinks this movie's reality-based. Um, all right. Uh, next up is uh, Gary Thompson from the Philadelphia Daily News, who says, The final showdown between Rip and Zeus is overlong and full of uninspired wrestling stunts. The camera crews of the World Wrestling Federation do a much better job. So another fan of the WWF, this time on the visual style. I do love because it was such a prevalent part of, again, pop culture that time. Whereas, like, no one gives a fuck about wrestling now. Like, if if anyone... Like when they try to do like mainstream television appearances, I mean, since Cena's gone, there's no real stars they have left anymore, and it's yeah, it yeah. which is weird because considering, I mean, Cena is doing, he, I think he's doing fine. It, it feels like his his movie career finally took off, and uh, and The Rock obviously is a, a huge superstar, so it seems a little weird that they're not looking at wrestling more, or maybe I just don't know about it, you know, to to see who's the next breakout star. Uh, a lot of that has to do with the way the industry's run now. It's a lot more uh, because The Rock and John Cena became as big as they are, uh, and they got out of the ability for the WWE to control them. The WWE tries to facilitate environment now where they ensure no one can get big enough to the point where they can't be controlled as a star. So if, you know, I'm not saying there is anyone under the WWE's contract right now that could be a star on the level of the rock or John Cena, but we'll never know. Cause they, they don't want anyone to get that big again. Um, that's a complete sidebar, but that's, that's why. And yeah, I'm glad Cena's uh, is seeming to stick now because, you know, well, the, the Rock. It took The Rock a few years to become a huge name, like he did. And he made a lot of stinkers in the beginning, but seeing Cena on like uh, beer commercials and just hearing him <laughs> narrate shit, I'm just like, God bless. Um, all right, got another one here. Uh, Roger Herbert from South Florida Sun Sentinel. While wrestling fans surely will queue up to see their boy win the day, No Holds Barred is just a sweaty headlock of a film with dreary, gory scenes and a bunch of slope-headed hokum to propel it. Hokum. Wow. Uh, yeah. A, a sweaty headlock of a film. That's, is there that's a date awesome, on that review? Uh, that's May 29th, 2013. I don't know why is he talking. Why is he speaking in present tense? Like I don't think any wrestling fans were actually queuing up to see the boy win the day on 2013. That might have been uploaded in 2013 because I, if I feel like slope headed has not been an acceptable vernacular for quite some time, but uh, 
can't can't say I disagree with what he was saying. <laughs> Roger Herbert saying fuck PC. Uh yeah. All right. One last one from another top critic, Desmond Ryan from Philadelphia Inquirer. For months now, Dustin Hoffman and Robert De Niro have been sitting in their dens and nervously clutching their Oscars. They knew that an <laughs> unprecedented challenge was looming, the arrival of Hulk Hogan in his first starring role in a movie. Uh, he gave That's it 0.5 out of 4. <laughs> That's uh, an, an amazing review. It is definitely the arrival of Hulk Hogan, if nothing else, uh, you know, in feature films. Not in, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I guess he had already arrived a long time ago and on wrestling. Oh yeah, he, he, Hulkamania began in 1984. Uh, as that's when he won the the title in the WWF for the first time. Hulkamania had been around since the early 80s when he was in a a different promotion. But the Vince McMahon guided Hulk Hogan, red, white, and blue, red and yellow colors. That was uh, 1984 on. So this was basically this is kind of cyclical where wrestling gets so big that Vince just thinks they can do no wrong. Uh, another example is that it's the first time around they did the XFL. They'll just get these massive endeavors that, you know, he just thinks, God damn it. The party's never going to end. So let's make a movie with Hulk Hogan and a movie. They made <laughs> the poster here, uh, Hogan and his baby blue and white outfit and the tagline, no ref, no ring, no rules, Hulk Hogan. And then you have a uh, tiny Lister and just, as a much smaller man on the poster, which is just fantastic. Okay, so no holds barred. We start in a WWF arena, and the idea, I guess, was to create some new intellectual property in the form of Rip Thomas, who is played by Terry himself, Hulk Hogan. Um, he comes out, and he's he's the the talk of the town, the cock of the walk. They go out of their way to make sure you're in a, an immersed WWF like experience with uh, Gene Okerlund and Jesse Ventura on commentary. And um, I, I geeked out because uh, I know who Jesse Ventura is. I mean, I don't know. I don't know much about him, but I was like, oh, that's Jesse Ventura. So even for a newbie like me who would have a very different experience watching this movie than a seasoned pro like yourself, um, <laughs> they were at least they were throwing some basic references. So I wouldn't be completely lost. Well, and it was very good for the time, too, because if I remember correctly, Predator was also 1989, and he was in that movie as well. <laughs> they were, they were um, pushing all the right buttons. Yeah. He wrestles, I, I think they call him Jake Bullet is his name. Uh, it's a wrestler by the name of Bill Eady, who was most famous for his portrayal of the mass Superstar, and also he was uh, Axe in the very legendary tag team Demolition. And, uh, you know... Rip is, you know, life imitates art. Rip is Hulk Hogan here. He's, he captivates the hearts and minds of uh, millions across the globe. But they did, uh, you know, there was a clear marketing campaign in mind with this because they created this Rip character and his tagline, Rip him, and it even has a hand symbol, which is one of the more important things you can have as a pro wrestler. There was a think tank behind this thing. They they completely created a whole mythology behind the, the Hulk Hogan character, or, you know, the Rip character. Uh, which was great. And again, I think that we're going to constantly throughout this episode, we're going to discuss the the difference between going into it fresh, like I did, and going into it knowing all, all, all the stuff that, you know, being, being a wrestling fan versus being somebody who's just friends with a wrestling fan. So uh, my experience watching this was one of constant wonder and constant discovery, even though 
I'm more knowledgeable about pro wrestling now than I was, you know, five years ago before we started this podcast. <laughs> There's still like a lot of stuff that to me was just, oh, so this is how it works. A, a lot of uh, <laughs> behind the scenes uh, uh, information that I was, you know, I had no idea that, that things were this way. So it was fascinating. On top of what I imagine for someone like you, it's just kind of a, a like when I watch a, a Marvel movie, you know, it's like, oh, I know the tropes. I know I know everything that, that goes into putting this together. So I'm just enjoying the product on kind of a, a, a very, uh, not superficial, but basically you, there's no awe, there's no discovery for you when you're, when you're watching a movie like this. You're like, yeah, this is wrestling. I mean, I knew this was wrestling. That's why I'm a wrestling fan. Uh, for me, you know, this was, this was uh, like phase one of the MCU. I was still kind of like <laughs> discovering the world. I mean... This was the first Avengers. Yes, yeah. I was like, man, that's it can be this good. <laughs> that's I, this is the high I'm gonna be chasing uh, on on wrestling for the rest of my life. Uh, <laughs> I mean, those are uh, in that opening sequence. Those are real wrestling fans. That's not CGI, right? That's that's a whole. Yeah. I uh, I can't remember it. Yeah, it was at a they did it at a live event somewhere. They're just like, hey. You guys stick around. We're going to film the scene for this movie. So so it was basically like a show that happened, and they told the live audience, if you want to stick around, we're going to film some for this movie, which is basically any wrestling movie that I'm familiar with uh, is what happens. That's um, the movie about Paige uh, fighting with my family. That's uh-huh. that's what they did with the, the scene where she wrestles AJ Lee. I haven't seen the movie. You've explained it to me, though. They told It was at a Raw taping, and they're like, hey, if you guys want to hang around, and then the crowd's like, I think they what I read was like they started to leave and then The Rock came out. And no one knew The Rock was going to be there. And he's like, <laughs> "Hey, I'm doing this movie, so if you guys want to hang out, you know, we'll chat." Um, so we get the title credits and things that I popped for the the score of this movie, if you want to call it that. It says music by Jim Johnston, who I don't expect you to recognize the name Julio, but that's a very prominent name in the pro wrestling world. He uh, he wrote and composed all of the wrestler entrance themes in the WWF from the mid 80s to uh mid 2000s. Yeah, so they they kept it in the family. Oh yeah, they they they, uh, they squeezed every penny on this one. And then, you know, the most imposing executive producers, Vince McMahon and Hulk Hogan. Um Hogan is uh, excuse me, Rip is accompanied by he has his trainer and also his brother who goes everywhere with him, Randy. Um and we see this match where he defeats uh, Jake Bullet, Bill Eady, and we cut to Kurt Fuller, who plays the antagonist of this movie. And really, the MVP of this movie is Mr. Brell, who is the evil network executive at WTN Networking and is just obsessed with ratings. And this comes at a time before ratings really fucking meant anything at all. So this was... Uh, clairvoyant and he appeared into the future it kind of peeled the curtain back for a lot of viewing audiences and made them realize you know in a few years these ratings things might actually matter so you better pay attention <laughs> you better pay attention to mr brill he's going to outline the the uh the game plan for success so kurt fuller i i guess this is the the pinnacle of his career he he seemed familiar and then i looked him up on imdb and i was like i mean i've seen all these movies or a lot of his movies um the moves in his filmography, but I don't remember him in them. Uh, so I, I think it's just one of those solid supporting actors that are kind of there in the background, have a couple scenes, right? Uh, they know they're dependable. Uh, for him to be given the opportunity to play not just the main villain in 
in a big blockbuster, but also to just you know be unleashed. They told him just go crazy. You do whatever you want. Uh, you can tell, right? He's relishing the opportunity. Every every bit of dialogue, uh, every every action he takes, it's just he knows that he may never get to play a bad guy this fun ever again. Oh yeah, absolutely. He uh, he's been given you know little parts here and there, but this was the only time he was really called up to bat, and he definitely knocked it out of the park. I mean, personally, for the amount of times I've seen Wayne's World in my life, whenever I think of Kurt Fuller, I always think of him as. Um, Rob Lowe's lackey in that movie, but you know, being that this is probably the fourth or fifth time I've watched No Holds Barred, that may change. Um, but he is again the evil network executive that wants to um, dominate the ratings, and he sees a prospect in Rip, and he wants to sign Rip for his network so he can broadcast his matches and um, essentially dominate the television landscape and. He uses the phrase jockass, I believe, four or five times throughout the movie to describe uh, Rip Thomas. And I think, you know, you want to talk about the think tank. I think what the intention was was for this jockass phrase to become, you know, uh, an insult on par with like butthead or, you know, any one of the numerous insults in the American uh, pop culture lexicon. Uh, I'm not sure that it stuck, but it was definitely a valiant effort. Well, if you if you search on eBay, the the Brill plush figures, you know, they have the little cord that you pull on him, and he says jockass, <laughs> but they were never a big hit, so it, it didn't catch on. He basically just tells his people, he's like, we got to get ripped no matter what the cost is. And one of his people, uh, one of his lackeys is David Pamer returning to the podcast here. Adding some class to the, to the proceedings, because I... It still happens now. I can only imagine it, it happened even more back then before wrestling was as legit as it is right now. But uh, the idea that, oh, you, I mean, this is fun. This is good. This is exciting. But it's a wrestling movie. But then you put David Paymer in it. I was like, oh, no, it's a real movie. Yeah, it, it, he, that was kind of, I had forgotten when I, last time I saw it um, prior to this viewing about David Paymer. And that's exactly right. I saw it I'm like, holy shit, there's a real actor in this movie. <laughs> and he plays... Yeah, Unger is the character's name. I don't know if I've ever heard him once addressed as that. He basically just gets yelled at the whole time. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's him and uh, a guy that looks like Andy Samberg's dad. Uh, <laughs> I had to look him up. Uh, Charles Levin. Levine. Um, Levine. Levin. Yeah, it, it, but it's it's crazy because so they're basically the two lackeys uh, of uh, Kurt Fuller. I mean, they serve the same purpose. They they're there to get yelled at to be just kind of. Uh, comedic relief, but they both have such different approaches to acting, to to playing those characters. Because Pamer is clearly, you know, he's like an actor studio graduate. Obviously, he's he's going in, in he's playing naturalistic, and uh, Charles Levin is more just kind of out there. He's more cartoonish. So to see them interact, in and especially in the background, because you know Kurt Fuller is. Uh, up front, just chewing scenery. And then in the background, you see these two lackeys just kind of uh, reacting to everything. It's just such a joy. Because at first, I was thinking, why not just combine them into one? You know, he doesn't need two lackeys. He can just do one. But it they needed uh, that two-prong approach uh, to the comedy there, where you can just exploit what Pamer's good at and what Levine is good at, which are two completely different things. Yeah. Um, 
but they play the the role so perfectly and the, i guess they they somehow finagle a meeting with rip thomas and rip comes in and actually meets with brill and uh brill you know kurt fuller's like i want you on my network here you know i'll give you any amount of money you want but no rip has his morals and his uh his principles he lives by his compass he lives by the demandments not unlike hulk hogan he respects that contract he does I did love uh, Kurt Fuller's line of contracts are only words. I guess contracts were operated a bit differently back in the 80s in that they weren't any type of legally binding agreement or anything like that. It was the Wild West. <laughs> he offers him a blank check uh, and Rip refuses. He then calls Rip a jockass to his face, to which Rip replies and grabs him by the tie and shoves the check down his throat and hits the one-liner. I won't be around when this check clears. And... uh I think when he goes to leave, he does like that. He falses David Paymer and Le- Levin. He like does the, you know, the faint at him, and they but they all like cower away from him. <laughs> yeah, uh, this is this was pretty impressive because uh, I mean, granted, we opened with him in a match. We see Hulk Hogan, we see Rip kicking ass, but you know that that that's kind of a a, a performance, right? That's not, I'm like that's not him in real life. There's no way that he conducts himself this way in real life. And then this meeting with uh, with Kurt Fuller that that proved me right because he comes in and he's just really calm and very uh, just measured in his responses. And then he turns on a dime. The moment that uh, that he gets called a jockass, it just the Hulk comes out. And but it's very different from his person that uh, from the persona on stage when he's on on the ring. This is just. Uh, I don't know, this is scarier. And yeah. the fact that he can make that transition believable, I think that shows to you that he's an actual actor. You know, because I think that you, you can have somebody uh, be a good performer in the sense that, you know, you can just be a, a, a singer, an athlete, somebody who knows how to put on a show, but that doesn't mean that you can actually sell us on emotions and so, sell us on, on emotional transitions. No. Uh, and Kurt Fuller is not going to be one-upped. He's not going to be had by a good guy. He has a ton of people on the inside, and one of them even, I guess, is Rip's limo driver. Because as Rip uh, uh, tries to leave, uh, the limo driver gets smartened up that, you know, take him to this warehouse where all my goons are going to beat him up. So we get, like, our first um, transition from the ring to the real world here uh, that we see, you know, Rip's just not a, a wannabe tough guy pro wrestler. You know, he's not fake. He's a real badass, and he just beats the shit out of this whole gaggle of henchmen. You know, it's like a Streets of Rage boss battle. It's better. It's It, it feels, you know, you said realistic, you know, said in the real world earlier, Ed. That's, I think that that's really the, the big accomplishment, that you can see a badass action scene that doesn't feel the need to set itself in a fantasy world and science fiction or whatever. This is happening in the real world, and, and Hulk Hogan can sell it. So Rip beats the shit out of all these people, and then the limo driver, he picks him up. He's going to give him the, the damning blow. And then we get probably the most quotable line of this movie, or the one I hear quoted the most from it, in which Rip asks, what's that smell? And then the limo driver, who has clearly soiled himself, says, Dookie. To which LOL. Rip responds, Dookie. L M A O. Uh, yes, classic, classic comedy. That's what I. That's literally the scene I remember from watching it the first time. I don't remember anything else from the first time I watched it when I was like, probably like fucking ten, but I remember that. <laughs> uh, this was unfortunately this was spoiled by the internet when they when they found out that I was gonna watch No Holds Barred. I I got I got the Dookie GIF plenty of times, and. Uh, 
it's it was still powerful. It was still funny when I got it. And if nothing else, it kind of I was relieved that we got it out of the way this early in the movie. Because I'd been wondering up till then, it's like, when is it going to happen? And what's the context of this? Because from <laughs> at least from the GIF that I'd seen, I couldn't really tell what was going on. It's just a close-up of uh, Hogan's face contorting in disgust, as he says, Dookie. So I was I was relieved, I guess, that it made sense. And uh, and yeah, it's funny. I mean, you, you he doesn't overplay his hand. Uh, neither him or or the filmmakers. This is the one actual poop joke. In yeah. uh, it, it, this is not a Sandler uh, movie where you know we're gonna see Hogan like fart and and shit himself for the next ninety minutes. No, this is just it happened once. It happened to one bad guy. And to be honest, I'm kind of surprised that we don't see uh, bad guys in movies shitting themselves more often. In, in you know high stress situations like this one, so it, it was good. It they took a familiar uh, sequence, a familiar trope, the the good guy beating the shit out of uh, bad guys, and they gave it an interesting new twist. That that's a win for me. Very relatable comedy. Uh, enter our flame, our muse of the film, Joan Severance, who plays, I believe, Samantha is the Samantha Moore. Yes, uh, apparently Rip needs a marketing rep. And that's what Samantha is going to be for him. And, you know, we're clearly in a different decade in this movie as he just is objectifying her from the start. But she is so enamored by him that she asks him out to dinner that night. It's it's a high stakes flirting. He's being pretty uh, direct with the way he's uh, checking her out. And uh, she basically she's faced with the decision of uh, do I play it coy? And and kind of see what else he's gonna do, or do I go on the offensive? And she goes on the offensive. She takes him out to a to a fancy restaurant. Yes, she thinks she's gonna humble him and you know make him look like a big dumb jockass in taking him out to this real <laughs> fancy uh, French restaurant. And the maitre d' that's sitting him, you know, he remarks, you know, we don't have the hamburger or the footlong hot dog. <laughs> But the joke's on all them because all the the staff there, the kitchen crew, know Rip. And they come out and they're like, what are you doing being mean to Mr. Thomas? He knows here. We know him. He's a regular. And then he orders in French and, like, turns the dime on Samantha here. Makes, you know, the egg, the proverbial egg is on her face in this situation. It's a French egg. It was the egg. (laughs) Uh, But it's it's cool because it does two things in this this, uh, scene. One, it reminds you that Hogan, that Rip, is a man of the people. Because, yes, the this nudie, uh, Metro D, he doesn't even know who he is. But you can see in the background, right, all the kitchen staff and all the other waiters, they're pretty excited and they finally come over. So it's like, yeah, these are wrestling fans working everywhere. But then it could have been just the easy joke could have ended there where they're like, oh, you know, we know Hogan. And then they actually bring him a burger. But no, they go the extra step and they have him order in French. So it's like you can be popular. And you can be cultured. Exactly. It doesn't have to be one or the other. A Daniel Day-Lewis before his time <laughs> was uh, Rip Thomas. Is it true that uh, Hulk Hogan took uh, French classes just for this scene? <laughs> I, 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 My understanding is Vince just busted out a French dictionary. All right, now, bonjour, pal. Goddamn. <laughs> so on the other side of the coin, uh, Brel is now determined to beat Rip in the ratings, no matter what the cost. Uh, so he's looking for something new, something fancy, maybe a new star that he can exploit. He's just going, you know, to the the subsections, excuse me, of human society and 
wanders into this nasty, nasty bar, and there's apparently a, a tough man contest of sorts going on there. And again, to put us kind of in a different time frame, the waitress looks at them up and down in their suits, sees her out of place, and says, you must be looking for the gay bar that's across the street. To which, you know, Pamer and Levin kind of act uh, offended by this, but um, Kurt Fuller cannot be bothered at all. He just looks right past the waitress and is like, get us a goddamn table. He's seen the future when it comes to ratings. He's seen the future when it comes to just uh, discrimination or the lack thereof. He doesn't have time for gay jokes. He's like, let's move the plot along. Um, So this is, Alex, again, where I think there's probably a divide because to me, I've never been to an indie wrestling show. I've only heard your stories. So when I saw this bar, this 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 arena of sorts where people were fighting, I was like, all right, this must be what Alex uh, always talks about when he goes to indie wrestling shows. And it was terrifying. I It made me worry for your safety. I mean, I know you're an adult and you can take care of yourself and you know how to navigate these areas. But if it was me, I would be like David Tamer or... or uh, or Charles Levin, where I wouldn't even know where to step. I could see you, you know, if I ever take you to an ind- independent wrestling show, I could see you just walking up to the bar. Please give me a very dry martini. <laughs> uh, so this is uh, not to say that I haven't been to shows that resemble this, because I definitely have. But this is uh, this is definitely more in the realm of the tough man contest that were all the rage in the late 80s and early to mid 90s of just, you know, step up you don't need any formal training just uh last man standing wins toughest guy wins uh julio would you at all be surprised if i told you the uh what's his character's name uh he's just referred to as neanderthal here on the uh wikipedia the guy that's the brother of uh of the waitress uh the gentleman that's chewing the tobacco with the bowl cut yeah yeah would you believe me if i told you he's like one of the one or two biggest pro wrestling stars, uh, foreign pro wrestling stars in the history of Japan. Uh, I mean, I'll believe it. My note here is, are all these pro wrestlers? That was my assumption, that they just populated that stage with actual wrestlers playing characters. So yeah, I'm pretty sure the majority of them they got were just job guys, just local journeyman wrestlers. Uh, But the gentleman who plays the tough man until Zeus shows up uh, is a gentleman by the name of Stan Hansen, who... In Japan, they refer to them as gaijin, uh, foreign wrestlers. Yeah, he would be in the, I'd probably say, number two biggest gaijin in the history of that uh, country as in terms of pro wrestling and was still a very prominent name at that point in time, which made his involvement in this movie uh, fascinating, I think is the right word to use. Uh, he he did not work for the WWF at this point in time, so he, he did not work for Vince McMahon, and he was from Texas, if you can believe it, from, I think, Boger, Texas, <laughs> uh, Stan the Lariat Hansen, who I once annoyed asking for a picture, and uh, then I heard him tell the promoter of the show that he wanted a Butterfinger before he would do anything else, which is one of my all-time favorite memories of going to an independent <laughs> wrestling show. But his involvement in this is very fascinating. And he uh, he kicks ass. He's the tough guy. He's the the roost of the bar here he's you know i use the expression cock of the walk already but um whatever the more derogatory version that is because he's not quite on national television but he's kicking ass he runs into david pamer and levin in the the bathroom and you know because we still got to emasculate these fuckers he makes a comment he calls them the teeny wangers 
which again I think was a, a tagline they were hoping would catch on. I mean, it's definitely it's a running joke. This is not a one and done. It, it gets brought up again and again. Um, it's good because I think that I was afraid, like it happens with some of these movies where we'll we'll be watching them and then a known actor shows up and we're like, oh, it's him, and then he disappears because he wasn't a big star back then. Uh, so I was afraid that Paymer was gonna have like a couple scenes and kind of always be in the background doing excellent work, but you know, just for people that were paying attention. Uh, but no, uh, him and Levin, they're they're constants throughout the movie and they they get their own mini comedic set pieces like here where they go to the bathroom and it's just disgusting and then this guy humiliates them. Uh, they become active parts of the plot later on. They, they, they're given missions. So I was just happy to see that, that, that the wealth was being spread equally among the talented cast. Yeah, um, and they... They do incorporate some of Hansen's uh, trademark quirks, I guess would be the right word, where he has the huge mouthful of chaw and spits the tobacco juice on uh, Pamer's shoes. And yeah, it's it's all there to build the sense of levity before things really come to a head. Uh, the Battle of the Tough Guys is what Kurt Fuller, uh, Mr. Brell, has figured out is going to be his network-dominating event and he announces it's basically going to be a tournament. If you think you're a bad motherfucker, come on down and see. The winner will get $100,000 $100, tax-free. I love that he, he uh, stresses tax-free <laughs> over and over again. Uh, and he mentions an octagonal ring is where these things are going to happen. This is literally a precursor to the UFC. This is literally what the basis of the first UFC was. Hey. See, that's what I thought, but I was, you know, I was by myself. And I didn't have anybody to ask, <laughs> so <laughs> I was like, "This sounds a whole lot like, uh, like the UFC with, with the eight-sided ring." So well, I'm glad my instincts were right. I'm proud of you on that one. But yeah, the, that's literally one of the things about this movie that is not discussed enough is that Vince basically predicted what the UFC was going to be uh, four years later after this movie in uh, November of 1993 in fucking. East Jesus Nowhere, Colorado. The UFC, the first one was, hey, you think you're tough? Come down and fight in this octagon. And the winner, I think it was $100,000. It might have been two hundred and fifty, but it was, yeah. Was it tax-free? Uh, I don't know. All I know about the first UFC check that the winner, uh, Hoist Gracie, received, you know, it was one of those big, you know, publishers clearinghouse novelty checks. And in the memo line, it said, for being the best. And I, I will never forget that just because it's so fucking stupid. <laughs> so Stan Hansen runs through all these people. He's kicking ass when the door of this bar on the upstairs level falls down. And we see this just silhouette of this Herculean godlike creature. Uh, and he wanders out and he comes into frame and we see this just giant jacked man, this bald man with a Z shaved into the side of his head um, with a domineering unibrow and a one eye that's completely grayed over. He comes down and just beats the shit out of Stan Hansen. And I think we're supposed to believe he kills him. And he then is announced as the winner of the Battle of the Tough Guys. And when asked of his name, he grabs the mic and introduces himself to the world as so. <laughs> uh man i didn't think that he had killed him and now you you've painted the, the <laughs> this movie a lot darker and kurt fuller's just like yes he's you know we got our champion he's beside himself here and 
he he's just so enamored because the show wins the rating war that they were top you know no one can touch them at this point so basically take zeus on tour this touring battle of the tough guys and zeus has ring gear now he has his his trunks that say zeus or his tights excuse me that say zeus he's got his cool metal wristbands and he's got a little headdress that he wears he continues just you know beating all these schmucks all the while challenging rip thomas to a fight you know kurt fuller is nothing if not a a petty man and all he really wants in the end of this is for Zeus to get the upper hand on Rip. Well, I mean, it's 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 pretty good build up because I mentioned earlier that when Hogan turns it on, he's pretty scary and this guy's scarier than him. So, it really made me fear we're like maybe halfway through the movie right now and it made me fear that somebody was not going to make it out of this alive. I may not be a wrestling expert, but I've seen enough sports movies. So I know that when you have the reluctant hero that doesn't want to get into the ring, usually what it takes for him to get into that ring is somebody he loves getting hurt. You know, I've seen Kickboxer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so I was mentally, I was just kind of like looking around at, uh, at Hogan's supporting cast, trying to figure out which one was going to bite it. So we are literally halfway through the movie. It's funny you say that because the transition in the next scene is when I looked at the display and i was like how fucking much longer is this movie and (laughs) it was yeah it was right at 45 minutes because this movie's right at 90 so rip and his marketing director samantha are going on an overnight i guess they're going on a marketing campaign um i guess a meet and greet see some fans we don't really we're not told where they're going but rip knows where they need to go for dinner and they go to this diner (laughs) where again rip is a man of the people and you know we have the the sassy waitress that loves him and just talks about how much of a man he is. And he talks about how much of a woman she is and really fun. Exchange. Yeah. She talks about how she wasn't married. She'd be fucking him right now. Oh yeah. And then because you know, Rip just happens to be there at this time. He foils this robbery. These two guys come in with guns and they try to rob the place and Hulk beats the, or excuse me, Rip beats the shit out of him, foils the robbery and then turns to Samantha and flashes the rip him, the, the hand sign. <laughs> I think it's a good reminder to show us, because it's been a while since we've seen him in action, whereas we've spent at least 10 minutes seeing Zeus destroying everybody. So we need a reminder that that Hogan also has skills. Um, oh, yeah. He doesn't even, it's not just that he beats up the robbers, he he pies them. There's levity to the situation. Exactly. He's a badass, but he's also charming. And... The reservation at the hotel somehow got askewed, so Samantha and uh, Rip have to share a room. Rip, being the gentleman that he is, uh, does basically an I Love Lucy setup where he drapes a curtain going down the the middle of the room, basically a divider, and... He, you know, he's trying to talk to her and, you know, kind of get inside and, you know, learn more about her, but she won't let him in. And this is what segues to our Oscar clip. If you, we think they go to bed and, but Samantha's awoken in the middle of the night to hear Rip, uh, gyrating and, you know, grunting. And she <laughs> looks over her side of the curtain and sees, um, at first she sees his two feet in the air, but they're shaped in the way the moon's hitting him. It looks like a little ass sticking up. So we get the, you know, the comedy of that, but then. Uh, she sees him doing push-ups, and he turns to her and says, "You know, don't wait up for me." Um, from there, he <laughs> gets up, and he's—I guess—he's going to go to bed now. But the pro wrestling instincts take over, and he takes a flat back bump into the bed. He <laughs> doesn't lay down in the bed like a normal human; just takes a—you know—basically um, selling like he got punched by the Macho Man, and just takes a flat back. And of course, the bed breaks. He's a three hundred. What, I'm trying to remember how much they used to try to say he weighed. I think at one point they say he weighed like 370 pounds or something absolutely absurd. But 
regardless, Hulk Hogan, Terry Bollea, Rip Thomas is a big man. So if he flat, flat backs bumps into a bed, it's going to break it. He does break it, and there's the comical trickle down of Samantha rolling down the bed and landing on him. And she doesn't she try to hit him? And he's like, chill out. Yeah, he makes some smart ass remark, and then she she hits him, I think. Because she falls on top of him, and I guess his his reaction is to kind of like grab her so she doesn't keep rolling. <laughs> yeah, and he it, he says like this wouldn't happen if you'd stay on your side of the bed. And that's when she tries to hit him, and he hits her with the chill out. The bed broke, and uh, <laughs> yeah, that your Hogan impersonation is magnificent. <laughs> that segues into the Oscar clip of shit. I can't remember the exact context, but she's mad at him, and he tells her you've built bigger walls than I ever could. And then hits her with, uh, there's a couch in the lobby that has a better sense of humor than you do. So he storms out of the room with, you know, a pillow and a blanket, and she's just left there to wallow in shame. See, this is fascinating because uh, there's so much going on in this in this scene, and even more going on when you remember that it's this is, you know, the 80s, late 80s. So the... the sort of like the gender politics of it all they were they were different and on the surface obviously you have the the rom-com setup of this these two attractive people sharing a bed sharing a room just because of a misunderstanding right and so you know or at least your expectation is that this is where they hook up they're not going to be able to withstand the sexual tension eventually they're going to they're going to hook up then you go you have the sort of the slapsticky part of it which is, you know, Hogan breaking the bed, the what looks like originally a masturbation joke, and it turns out that he's just uh, doing push-ups. But then, more importantly, it's just the idea that he's not trying to seduce her. You know, he's just being a normal guy, and he has, I guess, enough decency to just walk out of the room when he realizes that she's feeling uncomfortable. You know, there's attraction there, but at the same time, she has a lot going on, and even more once you get to a later scene that reveals what's really going on. But the fact that Back in the 80s, they had Hulk Hogan, who could have kept pushing. You know, when you look at movies of the 80s, rom-coms of the 80s, the dynamic you usually see is the the guy kind of wears the girl down because the guy knows that she really likes him. You know, mm-hmm. that she's just saying, she's saying no and she's acting mad, but really she likes him. But Hogan here, no, he's just, he realizes that she's just upset and... You know, he may take a cheap shot at her as he walks away, but in the end, he's like, I don't want any part of this. If you're not comfortable, I'm just leaving. I'm going to sleep on the couch. That, for a movie that's from the late 80s, that's pretty admirable. Yeah, it's definitely, it's something you you wouldn't get used to or had seen at that same time period. So a little bit of uh, breaking down uh, some barriers and walls, no pun intended with that. Um, But this transitions, I think it actually crossfades into us finding out that Samantha works for Brell. She's trying to get inside and, you know, she, she was sent on a mission to, you know, seduce him and get him over to the dark side. But she cares for him and she can't do it. She, you know, she won't help uh, Brell out for his forces of evil. Yeah. Retroactively, it makes that that scene at the hotel even more interesting because now you realize that, well, first of all, there wasn't a misunderstanding. Clearly, she booked just the one room uh, because her mission was to seduce him. But then the fact that she basically had him where she wanted him more than once. And she now she was also practicing restraint because she didn't want to, I guess, start a relationship based on a lie. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's like, if I if I sleep with Hulk Hogan, if I sleep with Rip, it's going to be when we're both fully aware of what's going on. Yeah. Uh, so, of course, when she uh, talks back or rejects the offer here of Brell, he, of course, hits her because he's the bad guy after all. 
So she ends up running back to Rip and basically just explains the whole situation to her. And he's surprisingly cool with it. Well, I mean, he's a he's a sensitive man. And he I think that he's being seen through her bravado. He can tell that she's a she's a good person. So everybody makes mistakes. And right before they, you know, cuddle up and they're about to kiss, we cut to, I, I guess, 2020 or 60 minutes or something. Zeus is on the television and he's challenging Rip to a fight. He wants to, you know, determine who the ultimo hombre is, as uh, Llewellyn Moss would say, and calls him out. And we get like a really dramatic close up of Hogan's eyes watching the television. And, you know, uh, he clearly doesn't answer here because the next day, Brell and, uh, Zeus show up at some charity event that Rip is doing, and they just call him he out. Said, uh, he's hanging out with Hogan's thoughts, or I guess Rip's thoughts. <laughs> uh, he's going to make their dreams come true for sure, because Zeus and Brel show up in a fucking chopper. And, I mean, it's a genius move, because Rip would look like a bitch if he turned him down in a fight in front of all those people. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I realize at this point in the movie that Aaron Sorkin is a wrestling fan, and clearly a no holds barred fan because this whole dynamic of um uh, Zeus calling him out and wanting him to get in the ring it, it was just a lot like uh Richard Dreyfus and Michael Douglas in the American President where Dreyfus keeps getting on TV and talking shit about Michael Douglas and Michael Douglas yes. doesn't want to engage and everybody around him is like you have to do something man uh I have a note here Rip's wardrobe is incredible because you know his outfit through the movie is just like basically spandex and you know typical things that you absolutely would have seen Hulk Hogan wearing in the real world at that point in time and he but in this scene where his cornerman's telling him you know I'm not sure you can win I know this Zeus he's a bad dude he's got like one of his outfits on but then he's got like this uh just white as the midnight moon uh like track jacket on he he, he just looks Unreal. He he does not look like a real person, which he is most definitely not. <laughs> In response to Samantha taking sides with Rip, Brill sends someone to beat and rape her, which fortunately Rip was just around the corner when this was happening and came and stopped it from happening. It was Joey riding on his motorcycle. That's right. Uh, it definitely, you know, if you had time to kind of sink into the fantasy of it all, this is a... Uh, basically the bucket of ice water that they throw on you to remind you this is still the real world. So is this something that happens uh, often in, in wrestling storytelling where, uh, I, I, you know, I guess you could say this is Sam's, uh, that was Sam's face turn. And does that get punished? Like, do you usually get punishment for when a heel turns into a face and then there's repercussions? Because in my mind, it always happened and it was just like, okay, well, that's not how it is. And it's not like it becomes a long running uh uh, like they have a threat for having switched sides. Oh no, yeah, yeah. You can definitely if you're a bad guy and you like if you turn on the or you cross the leader of like one of the big factions, there can definitely be some repercussions. I'll okay. give you an insight into the psyche of Vince McMahon. He basically not basically he used almost bit for bit the same angle with his daughter in nineteen ninety nine. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> where the Undertaker, you know, she crossed him somehow and so uh, the Undertaker and his Ministry of Darkness kidnapped her, and it was implied that she was raped, and then she was like crucified and was gonna be, you know, taken as uh, the Undertaker's like slave, basically, until the Rip Thomas of that time, Stone Cold Steve Austin, came and saved the day. So, yes, this does not happen anymore in wrestling, but it's something that Vince <laughs> used a few times. Uh, again, there's definitely a lot of the tropes of this movie that uh, bled into wrestling at the time and for the next uh, foreseeable decade. 
Anytime the ratings were lagging a little bit. Let's- God, rape. <laughs> God damn it. Uh, so back on the fighting path, Zeus is still doing his world tour of beating up local tough guys. Uh, Randy, Rip's brother, goes to scope out the competition. Uh, Brel gets wind that you know he's Rip Thomas's brother, and Zeus just beats the shit out of him to the point of hospitalization. Uh, this is also another Oscar scene of Hogan of him on the the table or bedside, excuse me, of his brother Randy holding his hand and crying and you know realizing what his life has come to yeah so so my worst fears came to pass where i knew somebody was gonna get hurt and and it happened and Mm -hmm. i i honestly thought see this is where i thought somebody had died because i that that shot of uh randy like on the ground after he gets beaten down he's it's kind of ambiguous so you don't know if he's actually survived or he just got beaten to death and then you see him in the hospital it's like okay and then you see him in a wheelchair. I was like, all right. it's <laughs> I know where we're going. He made it. Uh, Rip breaks into Zeus's customized gym, which is awesome. And also something that was like a massive precursor. Like now, guys, for training camps, will have, you know, they'll rent out gyms. So they'll have these gyms customized. Canelo Alvarez is a big one of uh, anytime he's in a fight camp, the gym is just his logos everywhere. And it's his image everywhere. And so Zeus has this really awesome gym that. Rip comes in and just starts tearing up, and his mind is playing tricks on him at this point. He thinks he's hearing Zeus and seeing Zeus, and uh, it's like in the in the Killing Joke when Batman's going through yes. the Joker's fun house. It, it was just that yes. that, that that type of a uh, what you call it, like sensorial attack. Yes, just, uh, that and the, all the mirrors everywhere are just fucking with him. And Kurt Fuller and his henchmen are watching this via their camera, which Hogan, of course, takes a weight and smashes it. But it has come to pass that Rip Thomas and Zeus will meet in the Battle of the Tough Guys live on television or even maybe pay-per-view. Um, we get the classic training montages. We get Zeus you know, punching cinder blocks. Meanwhile, we see Rip Thomas nursing his brother back to uh, good health. You know, I, I love that that uh, contrast. One of them is getting ready for the fight. The other one is getting ready. Is getting his brother ready to be on the audience. He's helping his brother walk along those like uh, support beams, and he's helping him walk. And he, come on, rip him, little brother! And he's helping him <laughs> along. It's it's classic stuff. We get to the night of the fight, and you know th- this could be in the MGM Grand for all I know. It, it's a fancy TV studio that shows the real deal. This isn't a bar brawl anymore. They got a real octagonal ring, and uh, <laughs> I guess it was the the toast of the town because all these fucking people are there in tuxedos and dresses and their Sunday best, and not even their Sunday best. It's like shit you would wear to like a presidential ball. Um, it reminded me of uh, the first time that we showed uh, an an opera live. At the movie theater, you know, via satellite. <laughs> and it's like, you know, we're used to the usual movie theater crowd. And then suddenly a whole bunch of people dressed up like they were going to the actual opera showed up. <laughs> like dudes with monocles and uh, top hats. And I was like, oh, I wonder if this is going to stick around. It didn't. <laughs> but it, it was in place for the, the finale of the Battle of the Tough Guys. As uh, So it's the night of the fight. Randy and uh, all of Rip's people are there. Randy's in a wheelchair. And... Uh, Brill's men take Samantha hostage, and basically Rip is smartened up, and he is told by Brill, hey, you have to make this fight go 10 minutes, then you have to lose or we'll kill Samantha. So the stakes are raised considerably. Yeah, they told him, on, on the 11th minute, your ass goes down. Say it. <laughs> and uh, and Brill, Kurt Fuller, tells him, 
Now, by the nine minute mark, you may start feeling a slight stinging in your brain. That's pride <laughs> fucking with you. Fuck pride, pride you brother. Jockass. <laughs> uh, I think that it was. It's it's funny because at least my reading of it was that nobody told Zeus about this arrangement because <laughs> Zeus is acting like he's gonna end the match on minute one. Yeah, he's not. He's not pacing himself, which that lack of communication could have cost. Uh, uh, Brill a lot of money if he's if wanting to give people a good show at least 10 minutes worth of a fight and uh, Zeus just comes out swinging like like this needs to end now it was uh, I thought it was amusing that you know for a bad guy that has everything so planned he kind of forgot of that key ingredient in the in the execution yeah he didn't tell Zeus like hey this no one's smarting him up as they would say in the industry of like hey this shit's fucking fake brother like, you know, you know <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, he's going for it. And then we get, you know, it is like I'm trying to think of the longest boss battle in Metal Gear Solid, because that's basically what this is like <laughs> in terms of just time that it takes. So they fight in the ring. They fight for a while. Hulk, or excuse me, Rip gets taken down and then he finally mounts a comeback and then they fight out of the ring and then they fight up to this catwalk. Um all the while, Samantha escapes because these dumbass cops that are supposed to be like holding her hostage get distracted by the fight, and so she's able. It's such a good fight. Yeah, exactly. So she's able to escape and get down and be with a. You know, I think at this point, Rip sees she's safe, so he knows he can start turning it on. So then he beats Zeus up to the the catwalk right outside of where Brill is uh, watching the fight. Beats up Zeus. Hits him with the Hogan one two three, you know he hulks up as we say in the in the industry, and then hits him with the running double axe handle, knocks him off this pier into the ring. Ring breaks. Zeus is done for, and <laughs> then he turns his focus on Kurt Fuller, who during this has been freaking out and he's been ripping this uh, production wall apart in the basically the TV studio there, and he's been ripping all these wires out of the wall. He's just been freaking out. And so now Rip turns his focus and he's going to take his frustration out on him. And while cowering away, Kurt Fuller walks into these exposed wires and fucking electrocutes himself to death. But it's it's a hell of a villain death. Did you catch what his last word was? No. Was it jockass? It was jockass. He's, he's, <laughs> I can't remember the exact line, but he said something like, you will not get me, you jockass. And then he gets electrocuted and falls down. And then like blood starts pouring out of his mouth. This is a horrifying visual. <laughs> We just did that uh, the Blue Velvet episode where uh, he walks in and the guy has the brain exposed. And that's what that's what he turned into. Uh, I thought it was great because you would would say this movie this this fight lasts like what twenty minutes maybe a little more. Yes, it's a uh, it's epic and you know you could say it's about as long maybe a little shorter than the the final fight of Endgame, the big battle. But <laughs> unlike that one here, you are focusing only on two fighters, mm -hmm. which allows for more emotion to build up. Right, you're not constantly cutting to like what other people are doing. All you have is the, the occasional uh, cut to how how far along Samantha is on her escape. But other than that, it's just Rip and Zeus beating the shit out of each other. All bets are off. I was pretty invested in it to the point what that when uh, when Brill died, 
I it was like it was the only thing that could have just been an appropriate release of all the tension that had been building up for 20 minutes. If this had ended with just like Brill going to jail or Brill not going to uh simply not getting the ratings or you know Zeus getting arrested, whatever, that would have been enough. The only way that you could really do this big fight justice was for somebody to be electrocuted at the end and spew blood from his mouth and all that stuff. Had to take it to the max is basically what they had to do. And they did. But uh, Rip Thomas has ruled the day. He has overcome Zeus and the evil forces of the WTN network and the evil forces of Mr. Brill. And he is celebrated. There's like the stu- the hushed silence after Brill dies and then everyone just kind of sees that Rip's okay and they start clapping again. And then Rip goes into the ring and throws up the Rip'em and then we fade to black and Freeze frame. the credits roll as uh, the classic no holds barred theme begins to play it's uh that's actually on one of the wwe anthology cds so i know at least when the chorus kicks in (laughs) no holds barred um as i was coming down from the just the big high of that fight though i was i was thinking i don't know if that's what they intended to do with the movie but it really made me think about basically why pro wrestling is better than MMA (laughs) Um, because I think that this movie is telling you that you need to have some control over over what's going on when you don't you could have crazy people actually hurting uh, not just themselves but hurting their opponents hurting the the audience you know you can complain about how like things are are sage and pro wrestling that you know what the outcome is going to be or whatever but I think that that's what keep people from actually getting hurt mm-hmm. versus MMA anything goes I mean it's, it's a real fight so somebody could get hurt really badly I mean I think that we've learned that pro wrestlers hardly ever get hurt so uh, <laughs> that's just uh I think that, yes, this movie would set out to entertain and set out to exploit and build up Hulk Hogan's figure, but it also kind of set out to remind people that it's a good idea to have rules. It's a good idea to have a roadmap of how a match is going to go so you don't have Zeus, somebody like Zeus, just basically destroying everything. Mm -hmm. But of course, that's my reading as somebody who's not a fan. I I think that maybe somebody uh, like you or or another longtime pro wrestling fan, they could just come up with it different argument and saying that no that's why they like mma because it's exciting they don't know when somebody's gonna kill someone um so i don't know i I guess i could see the argument both ways but it was definitely a deeper message than i expected to get from this movie i mean yeah that's fair enough it was uh at the end of the day it's just about right and wrong and uh you know doing what it takes for right to prevail and in this case the bastion of light that is right was rip thomas and he sure did rip him and he ripped his way into our hearts with this performance yep Dookie. Dookie. It was cross-promotional with uh, Green Day's album. Oh, God. Are you ready to move this along? Yes. Uh, let's do. All right. Moving on to Real Talk. It's a no-holds-barred match with no-holds-barred rules. Right now, let's get comments from the Macho King, Randy Savage, and the human wrecking machine, Zeus. Yeah! 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 yeah. The barber, beefcake, and Hulk Hogan, we all come to our house. Yeah! I steel cage, all the way around. There are no rules in a steel cage. Oh. No rules, Bob. Yeah! This man, he is 
no control. And when you get him with rules and regulations, he's like a fish out of water. But in our house, yeah, all you pucamaniacs are going to finally see something that you wish you never saw, but you did. And there's nothing that you can do about it, because you'll be So, real talk for No Holds Barred. Uh, where to begin? <laughs> uh, where to begin, indeed. But see, this is not one of those things where I I am puzzled by the genesis of this movie. I understand why it exists. I even understand why it just cares so little about being good. But I still... It doesn't surprise me that it's not good. It surprises me uh-huh. that it's bad in this very specific way. And maybe I'm a little less surprised now after what you said in Contrarian's Corner about how uh, Vince McMahon kind of used that uh, has used that plot of uh, oh female character gets uh, kidnapped and abused. <laughs> you know that he's used it several times with his own daughter. Yeah, so maybe that's just how his mind works and. In his mind, this is supposed to be an entertaining movie. I don't know, because I don't really know anything about him. But the the choices that are made in this movie are storytelling-wise. That's what confuses me. Not its existence and not the fact that it's not good, because I I don't think... I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but to me, it just feels like a vanity project that was supposed to just... You know, Hulk Hogan was popular, so let's make a movie with Hulk Hogan. It's going to make money. It doesn't have to be good because everybody's going to watch it because everybody loves Hulk Hogan. And uh, mm-hmm. and we'll go from there. <laughs> but, but you can make a movie that's not good, that's not as bad in a very particular way, the way that this movie is. So I don't know. I, I, that's really... Like, the Dookie scene, where's, is that, was that a... a a Hulk Hogan thing? Did he usually make poop jokes <laughs> when he was wrestling? No, no, no. Uh, so getting the usual out of the way, No Holds Barred was released on June 2nd, 1989. It was the week after uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade was released. Oh, my so, God. Yeah, it came in number two at the box office that week when it came out. Uh, a budget of $8 million, which I believe was pretty much all from Vince, and the in the end, it said he broke even. It made about sixteen million in its box office return, um, and since has become or not since, but during time periods when Hogan was no longer with the WWF, when he was with WCW, they would joke about it and whatnot. But 
again, directed by Thomas J. Wright, who the majority of his work I was able to look up was a lot of television work. I believe this may have been the only motion picture that he directed. And again, quote unquote, written by Dennis Hacken. Now, as the legend goes, and I fully believe it based on the movie that we got, there was a first version of the script that came out. And then right before they went into production, Vince decided he didn't like it. And Vince and Hogan spent a weekend writing a new script for it. And basically they just wrote what they thought the movie should be. And if you know anything about Vince McMahon, he's a lot like our current president in that he hasn't lived in reality since he was probably 15 or 20, if that. And basically you can tell by this movie, it doesn't seem like a human wrote it. It seems like <laughs> it seems like someone who has no grasp on, you know, the way people talk to each other or the way humans interact with each other, especially at societal and class levels. And then you have Hogan, who's just like, oh, yeah, brother, what, you know, in the next scene, too, if I, you know, said uh, 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 you've built bigger walls than I ever could, you know, that type of thing. <laughs> it's fully believed that it was written by them. I, I completely buy that legend. And. Being the film industry was a much different thing back at this point in time. I think uh, Hogan and Vince went to uh, Cannes that year, basically <laughs> campaigning for the movie. And uh, they like broadcasted the premiere and Kurt Fuller went to the premiere in full character. Like he was still Brell and he was like mad that, you know, Rip had won. Um, there's such a fascinating psychological study to this movie because the Brell is that's Vince. Like that's that's Vince McMahon, and the fact that Vince sees himself as the bad guy, but then <laughs> it's so fucking weird. And you know the Vince thing of you know women aren't real people; they're just objects and tropes, and um, and deceitful objects and props on top of that. Yeah, exactly. And then Zeus, I don't know if he was a stunt man, Tiny Lister, who is most globally known for uh, the role of Debo in Friday. But, you know, this is, he still does conventions to this day and he'll sign his Zeus eight by tens and whatnot. And he was not a wrestler, but I believe he was either a stuntman or maybe a bodybuilder. I mean, he was jacked as fuck. So he was clearly like a, a big dude and they were just so enamored by his look and his wonky eye and all that. And so, in order or in an attempt to capitalize on the popularity of the movie, Vince thought, well, we'll just bring Tiny Lister in and he'll be a wrestler now. But he's not, he was never trained to wrestle. And so that quickly dissipated. And he had, I believe, two matches in the WWF. And they were both tag matches because they, no, three, excuse me. He wrestled at SummerSlam 1989 and Survivor Series 1989. And then they also did, I believe, around Christmas time in 1989, they did No Holds Barred, the movie, the match. It was a pay-per-view that you bought, and you would see the movie, and then after the movie, it would go to the match. And the whole storyline was Zeus was mad that he lost in the movie, so he was there to like extract revenge against Hulk Hogan. I mean, it makes about as much sense as the movie does. <laughs> uh, I'm guessing they didn't bring uh, Fuller because he was dead. Uh, his yes. character was dead, so maybe McMahon was uh, <laughs> the the bad guy behind the scenes. They basically had Randy Savage, the Macho Man, uh, running. He was basically the liaison, the agent for Zeus, and then later Ted DiBiase, uh, the Million Dollar Man. But it was the idea 
according to legend, again, this is 30 years old and with pro wrestling, you know, yesterday, you don't know what's true and what's not. But the legend is if the movie had succeeded, the main event of WrestleMania six in the Toronto Skydome was going to be Zeus versus Hulk Hogan in a one on one match. The movie did not succeed. And then coupled with the fact that through no fault of his own. Zeus was just a terrible wrestler. He couldn't do any of it. And, you know, that's, again, the the blame for that goes on Vince and the company for just think, bringing this non-wrestler in and thinking he can do it. it basically, they just, like, said, you or me, like, hey, you got to go wrestle Roman Reigns, and, you know, you're going to be on these big pay-per-views. And it's like, what? No, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so, anyway, Zeus was shortly lived, and then probably for the better. He was gone after Survivor Series 1989, and then the main event of WrestleMania 6 became The Ultimate Warrior and Hulk Hogan, where Hulk uh, dropped the belt to the Warrior in one of the all-time classic matches. Zeus, I think, yeah, like I said, he still does like WrestleCon and all those circuits, and all, or the convention circuits, and uh, you know he's brought up time and again. I'm pretty sure they made like a Legends action figure of him, and he's definitely remembered as an interesting blip uh, on the pro wrestling radar, much like this movie is. So, you know, I've domineered much of the discussion about this, but that's to kind of set the table for what we're going to discuss of it was these two guys that wrote this movie who don't know what real life is. You know, they've surrounded themselves in a fantasy industry for their entire lives where the goal is to lie, 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 lie constantly. And then you couple that in with Vince McMahon, who has lived nearly his entire life being told, you're right, Vince. You know, no one's ever told him that's a bad idea. And if they do, he has the luxury to say, oh, well, you're fucking fired. Or he does the Kurt Fuller, the backhand of, you know, not without me, you don't. So there is a podcast called The Lapsed Fan that did a incredible, comprehensive uh, two-part episode on No Holds Barred where they deep dive a lot into the behind-the-scenes production and a lot of the you know, the on-scene or on-screen and off-the-screen drama and whatnot. Uh, we'll we'll link that in this episode if you ever have the inclination to listen to it. But Julio, before we actually dive into this movie and <laughs> it, it's small goods and overweighing bads, there's apparently 11% of reviews or 11% of the critics that reviewed this that enjoyed it. So given the Given the amount of reviews, the small amount of reviews on Rotten Tomatoes for it, uh, that's just two critics, two fresh critics. One of those is a top critic, Michael Wilmington from Los Angeles Times, who says the movie never takes itself seriously. And director Tom Wright from TV's Beauty and the Beast has fun with the wrestling montages. Hogan himself has an appealing screen presence, like a gallant teddy bear who goes berserk every 10 minutes or so. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I think that I don't find Hulk Hogan appealing. And, but no. maybe, but maybe if I was a wrestling fan and I knew him, you know, if I came into this movie just being fully familiar, being used to the, the Hulk Hogan character and its mannerisms, his mannerisms, uh, maybe I wouldn't, uh, been so resistant to his charms, <laughs> you know, no holds barred might not be a good, uh, entry point for somebody who's not familiar with Hogan. I don't know what is. <laughs> uh, so who knows? You know, I, I, like I said in Contreras Corner, I wasn't in, uh, kidding entirely. This movie obviously is a completely different, uh, experience for somebody who's not a wrestling fan. So I'm very curious to hear you talk about Hulk Hogan, the man, the myth, the legend <laughs> as a pro wrestling fan. I mean, it's whole he's 
Hulk Hogan. He's the reason I got into wrestling as a three-year-old kid, and he's a very important figure of my childhood, and obviously one of the two or three biggest pro wrestlers of all time. And you know, anyone that doesn't know anything about pro wrestling can usually they'll know who uh, you know Hulk Hogan, The Rock, Steve Austin, or John Cena are, but. It speaks to his ego and it, you know, the the delusion that he was going to be Arnold Schwarzenegger or you know even Sylvester Stallone. You know he had the thing that got him popularity in the first place was he was Thunderlips in Rocky Three. He was a pro wrestler that um, had a wrestler versus boxer match against Rocky, and the famous thing is he like gorilla presses Rocky into the press row, and that's kind of what springboarded him into the next level of stardom. But I think that all went to his head, and he thought he could be uh, an action movie star. Whereas uh, my read on everything at the time was he was like a novelty act, and he was this just huge domineering. Oh God, it's Hulk Hogan! Yeah, we can have him on Regis and <laughs> Kelly, and you know he hosted SNL in 1985. How uh, how unfunny was it? Uh, it, it was pretty brutal. I mean, I've watched it. It was him and Mr. T hosted together, and it was the day or the night before the first WrestleMania, which happened in New York City also. And, you know, it was just a lot of, oh, I'm a big guy type thing. And I I don't know. Hogan's made, you know, a half dozen movies that actually got theatrical releases. And I think the best use of him ever on the silver screen was his cameo in Gremlins 2, where he just, like, yelled at the Gremlins. Oh, like, yeah. Hogan I remember would. that. Yeah. It, it's hilarious. Uh it's a disturbing movie and how violent and it is. And it's also just, it speaks to the egotism of Hogan and also how Vince's mind operates. I can fully believe there was a conversation of, you know, well, Hulk Hogan wouldn't do this dude. So we got to come up with this other character. <laughs> this isn't something Hulk Hogan would do. And, you know, Vince just the, the quintessential, the trademark of Vince on this is jockass. That is, Vince McMahon has had a penchant for obsessing about words uh, for a long time. And if you watch WWE as regularly as I do, you'll notice what word Vince recently learned or what word he heard recently that he really liked. Like, I remember a few years ago, abdicate was a word that they kept, <laughs> you know, because he, when the commentators work, they have headsets on like you and I have right now. And he's in that headset telling them what to say. And so, you know, he tells them, you know, use this word or you know, uh, there's some words he doesn't like using. Like for whatever reason, um, you know, the titles they wear, the championships, uh-huh. he, for whatever reason, will f- like blow a gasket if you call it a belt on TV. Like if you, you know, when I was growing up, it was always, I'm coming to get that belt, that type of thing. And now if you call it a belt, he'll like lose his shit. It's a, it's a title or um, what's the other phrase? Uh, title shot. Uh, it's championship opportunity is what Vince wants you to say. <laughs> and it's, so it's not this, customer complaint it's customer concern. Exactly. Exactly. And so this jockass thing, I can see him, I can picture him, you know, with his, he's wearing his sleeves rolled up and he's still got his shirt tucked in and there's, you know, uh, a diet Coke can or something. And he's at a fucking typewriter and, you know, just <laughs> jockass. <laughs> it's going to be great. This PG thirteen, right? Yeah, yeah. That doesn't mean we can't still get in some implied rape. You know, <laughs> one thing I never noticed prior to this viewing is when that guy goes to assault her, he tells her, "Mr. Brill says it's party time," and I was just like, "Jesus, God!" Yep. I I thought it was funny because you were talking about how uh, 
you know, Hulk Hogan and he wasn't Hulk Hogan. He was ripped because of, you know, not to send the wrong message to the kids. Like all the kids that were watching this movie <laughs> where, you know, this woman gets pretty close to getting raped. Uh, I got two more quotes, one fresh and one that's rotten, but made me laugh. Let's do it. Uh, Felix Vasquez Jr. from uh, Cinema Crazed says, Hogan as the Ripper is a force of nature here, and he makes no holds barred into a fun action cartoon. Uh, I agree with the cartoon part. Yeah, I read that review too. And then finally, Gregory Winkoff from New Times says, try no holds suck. Tiny <laughs> Lister is awesome, but apart from the Scorpion King, the Princess Bride, and the one and only, all movies involving wrestlers are stupid. All right, hold on. When was that written? That was October 22nd, 2003. Or at least that's when it was okay. uploaded. But, I mean, okay, give me movies, good movies involving wrestlers uh, that are not The Scorpion King, The Princess Bride, or The One and Only, whatever that is. I don't know that one. I don't know if I agree with The Scorpion King. I thought that movie kind of sucked. I would have, for Dwayne's early movies, I would have said, um, what's that movie called? The Rundown. Uh it, I mean, at this point, yeah, Dwayne's in a lot of movies. The one and only, by the way, is a movie with Henry Winkler about it's loosely based off uh, Gorgeous George. He's um, uh, He gets in some kind of predicament where he needs money or something, and so he becomes a pro wrestler, and he's really – he's got like a big uh, blonde hairdo, and he's very flamboyant and, you know, I guess Ric Flair-esque before that time. But uh, I've never seen it. I'm, I'm just familiar with it. Good movies involving wrestlers. The wrestler, obviously, there's a lot of real wrestlers in there. Um, oh well, yeah, I guess, but but no, I mean, if well, no, I was gonna say wrestler where the, the wrestler is the main star, but no, because Princess Bride, uh, you know, Andrew the Giant is a supporting character. So and uh, it depends on how far. I mean, Dwayne's made a lot of good movies. Uh, well, it, Dwayne's made a handful of great movies, <laughs> but it depends on where the separation becomes. Of well, he was no longer a wrestler then. That type of thing, right? Yeah, because like I'm sure if I said pain and gain, people would say he was way too far removed from wrestling at that point in time. Yeah, shit. Uh, I don't. It. There are few. Um, they live. They live is a perfect uh, example of a good movie with a wrestler. Have you seen They Live? Uh, no, I've seen the fight that goes on forever. That fight goes on longer than uh, the fight at the end of No Holds Barred, right? But it it's way more entertaining. <laughs> uh, they Live would be a, a perfect, uh, and that was 1990. And that was Roddy Piper, and he was still a very, very uh, big name in the industry. Is he? But, is he the guy that uh, that chews bubblegum and he's out of bubblegum? Yeah. Okay. So that would probably come to mind as uh, a shining example. And yeah, it's slim pickings because it, it doesn't. It, that shit doesn't translate. That's what makes Cena and The Rock as good as they are that they're able to translate some of those skills. It's a completely different thing. The fact that I can go out uh, or Hogan, for example, can go out in front of, you know, 20,000 people and just, ah, well, let me tell you something, brother, and do all that. And then get like those people super psyched and invested in how absurd what they're watching is does not mean that he's going to be able to make a full length motion picture doing that same thing. And, you know, get people all amped up about it. Well, actually, the thing is that he's, at least in this instance, he's not even doing that thing. That's the problem. Because, uh, you know, I can buy him in, in the wrestling stuff, you know, because that's doing his thing. But when you're actually, actually asking him to play a character, even if that character is really broad and, you know, you wouldn't think particularly demanding. But I think this movie shows that at least at this point in his career, he was not an actor. You know, he was a wrestler. No. Well, then I speak to that too. The fact that, uh, you know, Hogan was able to do those like cartoony promos and shit, 
that does not mean yeah, he's amazing at that. It does not mean that he's going to be able to pull off a convincing like romantic scene or be like, you know, he's going to have good chemistry with a, an op- a female opposite him. It's, it's something that I think way too many people in that industry overvalue their worth. And Hulk Hogan's worth is as high as anyone's has ever been. But the idea that he thought he could leave and tackle Hollywood shows how short-sighted he was, how Vince was, and then also the egotism of it. I don't think The Rock gets enough credit, and now eventually John Cena, you know, assuming things continue going on for him the way they do, of being able to transition. That's something that the sports world, uh, you know, be it real or allegedly not real, has had for decades of athletes trying to transfer over and make movies or, you know, do television. And the success rate for that is not high. You know, you had Dennis Rodman, um, fucking uh, the Boz and all these different actors or athletes, excuse me, that tried to transition into acting and ended up just making like B-level movies or like straight to DVD. Even Steve Austin. Steve Austin's the greatest pro wrestler of all time. Biggest star in the history of that industry. You know, he was in the first Expendables and he was fine because he had about three lines in it and he just kind of stood there and looked, you know, he had that really good presence. Uh, But he's made a ton of straight to DVD movies that I've watched some of them and they're fine, but, you know, it's not Casablanca or it's not, uh, take me home tonight or you know all the other classics that we discuss all the time on here <laughs> well, it's i mean but but that happens all across the board i guess that transition is always uh you know you're taking a chance uh whether you're a, an athlete you're a you're a singer you know maybe even you know you're somebody that their their set of talent works very well on a tv show uh, especially i think back before tv shows had gotten so cinematic yeah but let's say like 10, 15 years ago that you could carry a sitcom or that you could carry uh, a procedural didn't mean that you had it in you to carry a movie. And, uh, you know, it, the same applies to wrestling, except that, I don't know, do you have just more bravado coming from uh, the wrestling world <laughs> where you you have uh, you're a little more cocky? And you're like, well, no, I'm, oh, I'm, yes. I'm going to make it happen no matter what. Yeah, that was Hogan left the WWF in 1992 thinking he was going to become Arnold Schwarzenegger. He was back in March of 1993. So like, it was. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, yeah, because he made Mr. Nanny and then a couple other ones. And it's yeah. And that's because of that. These fucking carnies that are in the wrestling industry. You know, Hulk Hogan's a prime example well, I did so good over here, so it means I'm good everywhere. You know, I can just go anywhere and be fine. And a part of the problem with that, too, is, you, you know, you don't hear about it as much anymore in the music industry, but there was always, like, people that surrounded themselves with yes men and yes women that just thought they could do no wrong, and then when they try some new venture, it kind of backfires in their face. And wrestling, uh, not as much anymore, but definitely back in Hogan's era, those guys thought they were, you know, God's gift to the world, and anything they could do would be top-notch i mean hogan still thinks that if we had hulk hogan on here right now he would tell you he could go make a movie tomorrow with you know quentin tarantino that would be the greatest movie of all time and that you know (laughs) if he really wanted to he could still become a ufc fighter and win that dude's just as delusional as they come and i think this movie kind of represents that because there's no there's no other word to describe watching this movie uh and knowing that the people that wrote and made it thought it was going to succeed other than delusional. That's the word to describe it. Yeah, it's that was going to be my question. Is, is, is this acknowledged in the in the wrestling world uh, as as a success of sorts, independent of, of 
box office. You know, like uh, we did, we did uh, Ready to Rumble. Okay, so we did Ready to Rumble, and that is basically vilified, mm-hmm. right? Well, it's in the more quote unquote respected circles. Uh, friend of the podcast, Reed, you know, he loathes that movie. But, you know, fans like myself and a lot of friends I have that can poke fun at the absurdity of pro wrestling find it humorous. But your question is the industry in general, how it perceives and portrays it. And like, so ready to rumble the way, you know, the historians of the industry would present it like this black eye, this, uh, you know, embarrassment thing that happened. It was WCW's last gasp at trying to do something to latch on. And hey, they got Courtney Cox to be on an episode of Nitro because of it. So, I mean, they did something, right? <laughs> they got, oh, Jesus, I just rewatched that recently. They got Courtney uh, Cox because she was, so she was with David Arquette and she was making a movie with Kurt Russell at the time. So they got Kurt Russell to be on an episode of Nitro. So, you know, they they tried to get their attention. And then with this one, with No Holds Barred and, and didn't mean to steal the Ready to Rumble discussion. Um, <laughs> I've never... Because Vince's narratives shift all the time. The WWF and the WWE's way of... uh, They take revisionist history to a whole new level. And I remember at one point in time, they tried to act like it was an achievement that Hulk Hogan was able to make this. And, you know, the fact that he was able to branch out and make this. And, yeah, I could make a movie if Vince gave me $8 million. But... um, (laughs) <laughs> so I sent you the picture. I got the Blu-ray of it because the WWE actually released it on Blu-ray back in 2014. And the marketing behind the release of the Blu-ray was oh, basically like, oh, the cult classic. You know, they um, and they had all the superstars. Uh, got to call them superstars. You can't call them pro wrestlers. That's another Vince thing. Uh, <laughs> they had all of them reciting lines from the movie, like, you know, kind of like you would joke about, like I, I, me and Reed would with like a Friday the 13th movie, like the really bad lines. So I guess the most recent, the most up-to-date narrative on this movie is that it's very bad, but we should celebrate it because it's kind of a cult classic and fun, which... I can appreciate, but it's not like a Friday the 13th and that I don't really have much fun watching it. <laughs> I, I got the Blu-ray just to kind of be a completionist about it. And also the Blu-ray, the bonus features are the matches Zeus had in the company, which I thought was hilarious. But, but how um, representative How representative are you of uh, of the rest of the wrestling fans? I mean, is it a cult classic in the sense that uh, there are people out there? How does Reed feel about it, for example, compared to how he feels about uh, Ready to I, Rumble? He would watch this 10 times before he would watch Ready to Rumble. You know, yeah, Really? Which... Based on your inflection there, I think you agree with me that uh, I would much rather watch Ready to Rumble than watch this. Me too, but at the same time, I watched this by myself, so it was a really punishing experience. (laughs) (laughs) Ready to Rumble, I watched with you, so I had somebody to talk to and somebody to kind of hold my hand through it. I mean, I don't know, which one's shorter? (laughs) I think they're both about the same, but... um, Yeah, in the wrestling community, it's, you know, dookie... Dookie. That's a, you know, people will quote that. And, uh, <laughs> Zeus, probably the offshoot of this movie. I'll find the audio so we can keep put it on the podcast, either at the front or end bumper. I think the thing that came from this movie that is most celebrated in the professional wrestling community is that. Oh, so I was wrong. Zeus had four matches. 
Anyway, so one of the matches he had was a steel cage match where it was him and Randy Savage against Hulk Hogan and Brutus Beefcake. And the promo that Randy Savage and Zeus cut, and they were accompanied by Sensational Sherry, Randy's manager. They're like just on a soundstage, and like the one of the walls of the cage is there. So they're like standing behind the cage and like kind of holding it up, but it's framed to make you think that like the cage is there. And they are both sweating so much and are clearly on so much <laughs> cocaine. And they're just like screaming at the camera that it's become one of these like celebrated promos of just like how absurd wrestling is. I think that the lasting <laughs> legacy of this movie is that that promo came because of it. And uh, it's like, he's just screaming at the camera of Hulk Hogan. And, uh, you're on my rules now. And while they're screaming, the sensational Sherry's like running around and like climbing the cage up and down and just screaming like, you don't know where I'm going to be Hulk Hogan. It's, I think, (laughs) I think I watched it once with my dad and I was like, this is why I love pro wrestling. Um, (laughs) It's a fitting movie to do in that it's so bad that it kind of plays into our gimmick, but it was definitely difficult to try to be positive about it because it's, it, it, again, it's written by someone who uh, views women as lesser than and has likely never met a minority in his entire life or had like a friendship with a minority in his entire life. Um, yeah, it, it's I think that my my thought process or I guess what was what I was wondering as I was watching it is like how much of it am I not getting? I mean, it's a bad movie. I think that everybody would agree that it's not a good movie, um, but the people that enjoy it, in, do they enjoy it because they're wrestling fans. Yeah. You know, we were talking about Street Fighter last episode and how uh a lot the majority of people that enjoy it enjoy it because they play the game and they they get the references and so they have an attachment to the property and here if you if you're a pro wrestling fan and you have an attachment to to pro wrestling, you have an attachment to Hulk Hogan, then that helps you enjoy it. You know, I I felt that with um Ray to Rumble, there was that feeling that I was not getting the jokes because I was not a wrestling fan. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to the extent of, you know, that can happen. But with this one, it didn't really feel so much because it's not so much a wrestling movie. This is no. more just some sort of Hulk Hogan fantasy. Yeah. So it doesn't really hold water that way. Uh, I didn't feel like I was missing out on a whole lot by not being part of the culture. It was just, it was just a movie. <laughs> a bad one that happened yeah that happened to have uh a couple of matches and happened to have a wrestler as the the star but overall it's not like it it was just embedded in the culture of pro wrestling the way that i felt uh, ray rumble was it, that makes perfect sense with ready to rumble there's a lot of reliance on you have to be a wrestling fan even like the vernacular like the the verbiage they use they use a lot of inside terms and shit that like for me i watch it and i just completely understand it and then i have to like remove myself and be like oh yeah a normal person wouldn't understand what the fuck they're talking about right now with this you're exactly right this is a movie that you don't have to have i mean it helps if you know who hulk hogan is but you don't have to have any prior knowledge of anything to understand the movie uh it's still a bad movie it doesn't do anything to to make fun of wrestling anywhere near as much as no holds or excuse me ready to rumble does which is probably why people like reed and some people i've talked to have a a higher you know as much as possible adoration for it because that is the thing ready to rumble does make wrestling fans look like trailer park trash Uh, and (laughs) that's in most cases it's not too far from the truth but with this it's just like 
I guess the nicest thing I could say about it is it's a bad 80s action movie. Um, but it does do a good job of capturing Hulk Hogan in terms of his cartooniness. And I have it pulled up right now looking at the poster for it. I remember going to the video store the first time I rented it on VHS because the, the cover, it was so like it was it's one of those classic 80s VHS covers of it's got these popping colors. And then it also it's got Hulk Hogan and he's just so big and jacked and the font on it looks cool. And it's it's really alluring. And that was the whole allure of uh, allure, excuse me, of Hulk Hogan. You know, as a little kid seeing him and like, holy shit, what is this? But I don't even remember if I liked it the first time I saw it. But, yeah, if you have any semblance of a brain watching it, then you're going to be able to just realize that no this has nothing to do with wrestling in one way there's just a bad movie so does he get better hulk hogan uh, i haven't seen any of his other movies so does he eventually develop uh i don't know does he feel more comfortable like, when you're watching him because <laughs> here he's no he's you know, just he's, okay <laughs> he's just hulk hogan and everything no dude you know it's just it everything he does uh uh only thing I remember seeing was Suburban Commando. No, I never saw Suburban Commando. I saw um, Thunder in Paradise, which was a made-for-TV movie he did, and uh, Mr. Nanny. I remember running Mr. Nanny a few times as a kid, which is, you know, the – what was that movie Vin Diesel made? The Pacifier. The Pacifier, you know, the, yeah. Yeah, the whole crux of the movie is just he's a big jack dude that's been uh, domesticated and has to take care of these kids and – no, and, and, you know Hulk Hogan's Hulk Hogan was put on this planet to be a pro wrestler. He was put on this planet to wear spandex and yell and oil up his arms, and you know, and he did it better than almost anyone else ever has, and uh, that's fine. But that does not mean that you know he's going to be able to make cinema because this movie is not cinema. I don't know. Nobody's checked in uh, on it Scorsese to see how he feels about <laughs> no holds barred. God, the idea of Scorsese watching this movie is just. <laughs> oh yeah jockass yeah, i like that um uh, where do you I, I might have asked you before but where do you rank Hulk hogan as far as you know your wrestlers the wrestlers that you follow that you love and all that stuff uh he's such a piece of shit that i don't really i have a hard time as an adult like saying positive things about him as far as like my personal favorites of all time uh, he probably wouldn't even be in the top 50 but as far as like um I can't discredit the impact, you know, he had on my childhood. And when I see him, I will always just be like, oh, that's Hulk Hogan. It's fucking Hulk Hogan. Um, but him, like, growing up and learning how big of a piece of shit human he is is just, uh, I mean, that's part of growing up is sometimes your heroes are always want what you thought they were. But as far as his contributions to the industry and his star level, uh, I, number two. I mean, Steve Austin's the biggest of all time, but Hogan would have to be right behind him. It you know, the biggest stars, um, The Rock, Steve Austin, and Hulk Hogan. And then the conversation from here would devolve into me talking about like Ricky Dozon and uh, <laughs> El Santo and all these people that you have no idea who they are. But uh, he's Hulk Hogan. That's that I, I, there's a lot of wrestlers that really don't care for him. That That's like the go to line of, you know, when they're asked about him, what do you think about Hulk Hogan? He's Hulk Hogan. He's, you know, one of the biggest ever. Um, <laughs> I kind of discussed it earlier. To me, my favorite tidbit is Stan Hansen in this movie because he was still the you know the the tough guy, the tobacco chewing tough guy. Uh -huh. He was still a very big name. I mean, a huge name. And I wasn't just trying to be dramatic for the sake of Contrarian's Corner. He's probably the in the top three biggest 
uh, foreign wrestlers in the history of Japanese pro wrestling. He was just like massive over there because, I mean, it makes sense. He's this huge fucking Texan. He would come out wearing cowboy boots and he had a leather jacket and a cowboy hat and he always had a a long rope with a cowbell on the end of it and he would swing it when he was coming out you know wrestling back then in his day was not like it is now with these big entrance ways so it would just be these throngs of people like these japanese fans would be at the door where he would come out and then he would come out swinging it and it looked like a fucking you know a monster movie because he would come out and like these crowds would just scatter he would like he hit a lot of people like fans with his cowbell he injured people because they just thought that was like oh fun the big texas guy hit me in the head um (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so he was still a big name at this point in time. And I- I've read conflicting things like he got some shit for, you know, uh, doing the job in the movie to Zeus. They're like, why'd you lose to him in the movie? It makes you look bad in real life. It's like, it's a fucking movie, you idiot. Uh, <laughs> to me, the more surprising thing was they didn't try to use him to bring him in to feud with Hulk Hogan and the WWF for that feud of being like, Oh, you never faced me in the movie. I you know I could beat you because Stan Hansen was a huge name and legitimate tough guy. And, uh, it's just, it's always funny to see him in this. And the one thing I caught on this viewing that I never caught before, the way he wins his bar fight is he uses his finishing move from wrestling, which is, uh, it's called the Lariat. It's a clothesline. It's, it's in the background of a shot. So it's not the Uh focus of the shot, but I noticed it and I audibly like applauded at the television when I was watching it this time. If I had Um, to, if I had to pick the, the one thing I enjoyed in this movie, it was David Paymer and, uh, oh my God, the other guy. Levin. Levin, which is, I mean, scraping for uh, for good stuff. <laughs> but especially Paymer, because he was not being cartoonish at all. No. And everybody in the movie is. So the fact that he somehow managed to not feel out of place in, in a movie this ridiculous while still somewhat keeping his dignity was was crazy. I, I was and I was not kidding Contreras Corner. I was glad that he was in it as much as he was. Just as a tether to sanity for me. He's just doing very subtle work compared to maybe it's not as subtle. It's just that compared to everybody else, he's really, you know, downplaying everything. But he's not he's not phoning it in. You know, he's just he's doing his job. He's fucking David Paymer, he got paid for this and <laughs> he's there. He's he he gets a few funny lines. He he does what he can with them. And uh at first the contrast between his acting style and uh Levin's uh, acting style was really distracting and then I grew I grew to appreciate it maybe because the movie just beat me into submission. I don't know, but <laughs> there was <laughs> it was it was something. I would zero in on them during scenes. You know, they're they're actors. They're doing what they can. They they're surrounded by what they must have known was a pretty bad movie, and yet they're still kind of giving it their all. So I don't know. David Paymer and Charles Levin definitely were they were doing more than they had to in that movie, and and good for them. Uh, Joan Severance is just so nothing that um, I think she did actually a few legitimate projects at one point in time, but this is definitely. Uh, she I get think, in the ring? No, I think she knew the score <laughs> uh, after she made this. Um, Zeus is Zeus. I mean, he's fine for what he is, and like I mentioned, his cinematic achievement would not come for another six years until he was in Friday, which that movie's great, and he's awesome in that movie. Better um, than he is in uh, Dark Knight. He has like four lines in the Dark Knight. I, when I he's... screened the Dark Knight, I literally yelled "Debo" when he came on screen because <laughs> that was so unexpected. 
Nolan will do that sometimes with movies. He'll have like someone in there and you're like, what the fuck? Like uh, Dark Knight Rises when Thomas Lennon was the doctor. I was like, what? <laughs> but the MVP of No Holds Barred is not Vince McMahon and his amazing writing. It's um, Kurt Fuller because we jested about this in Contrarian's Corner. You can tell he said, this may be my only chance to be a leading man. I'm going 100%. And the things he says are so dumb, <laughs> but he says them with such conviction and intense delivery that I do want to call out his performance is the only thing that keeps me from giving this movie an F. It goes to a, to a D minus. <laughs> and that's because Kurt Fuller is so invested and believes so steadfastly in his performance in this that I find that admirable. I, I'm going to differ with you on how effective it is. I do agree that he is giving it, fuck, not 100%. He's giving it like 200%. That guy is is in it to win it. But it didn't work for me. You know, I could see how he was trying, but it just, I, I kept shaking my head. I was like, I know this is supposed to be funny. It's just not. Maybe he doesn't have the benefit of Paymer and Levin of not having the spotlight on him. So he he has to carry this ridiculous movie as the antagonist. Whereas like the other guys are in the background, so they can just kind of like fuck around and be actually funny. But he he was just it was like nails on a chalkboard, man. I just couldn't and I'm sure he's great in all the other movies where he's doing small parts, but uh I don't know what the, what would it take for me uh to really by this character, this this evil bad guy, the way that he is written. I don't know if you have a, a an actor that could perform it in a way that salvages somewhat the material. Gary Oldman. Uh, I mean, that would be very interesting to see. Think <laughs> but, about Gary Oldman saying "jock ass." It would make me mad. I think <laughs> I, I'll, I'll probably resent it even more. And here, at least Fuller, I don't really. I wasn't getting Contreras Corner. Like I don't remember him from anything. I know I've seen movies. And he seemed familiar, but I couldn't tell you, oh, he, he played this part. So I was taking him as, as a character without baggage. You know, if you had a, a known actor, if you had Ullman there, I'll be just kind of annoyed that that's Gary Oldman doing his shtick. I don't know. I, I, I think that maybe it's just that I there was no way that it would work for me. So uh, let's make it work in a new era. The Rock, let's say The Rock is in the Rip Thomas role. Okay. Oh, we're uh, ready. We're ready so far ahead of uh, <laughs> what this movie accomplished. I'm sorry, uh, Hulk Hogan. I just, The Rock is more my speed as far as, as the type of charisma that works for me. Oh, absolutely. To be fair, I've never seen The the Rock wrestling. I, I mean, you've shown me some of the promos and some of the stuff, but, you know, like the, the kind of stuff that Hogan does on the ring in this movie, I'm assuming that that's kind of like what he did in the ring. Oh, uh, yeah. Very punch kicky. Yeah, but but also just like before the the matches where he's just kind of like hyperventilating, his nostrils are like wide open, and he's just rough, rough, his, rough, 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 yeah. rough. Yeah, yeah, that stuff just feels weird. <laughs> the Rock seems like a normal person. That's kind of like really loud. I could yeah. be wrong. Like I said, I haven't seen him, you know, actually wrestle. Maybe he he did more animal noises and uh, <laughs> more his oh, face no. contorted a lot more while he was while he was fighting. His whole thing that got him over was, you know, kind of how he carries himself now is you look at him, you're like, man, that guy's cool. Like, and that was his whole thing about like, you know, his movements were very meticulous and he was very laid back. And um, his best work was always when he was a bad guy, when he was a heel, like just the way he would talk shit to the fans was just like, oh, God, there, there there's only <laughs> one like Dwayne. 
Um, I'm trying to think if, if we'd made this today, if Dwayne would be the Rip or the Zeus. I think that would flip it on its head if he was the, the bad guy. But no, 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 no. You don't want to limit Dwayne's dialogue. Who's like a big jacked actor that doesn't really... You, we wouldn't need them to speak that much. Well, but does he have to be an actor or would it be uh, a pro wrestler? Oh, yeah. I mean, we could bring in pro wrestlers. I mean, if we wanted to make sure he was a black guy, like Bobby Lashley is a wrestler who's like the most jack dude on the roster and he's a big black dude. Or you could just uh, Braun Strowman or Brock Lesnar. The idea of Brock Lesnar in a movie to me is so fascinating <laughs> that I'll just say that. See, I recognize that name. Uh, what's the guy that uh, everybody used to like and now everybody hates? A pro wrestler that, that has fallen from grace in the past few years, or at least for you? Because I, I know there's a... Uh, it's not Triple H, is it? No. Uh, no. I don't know. There was somebody that you used to like, and then I you just turned on him. Oh, man. That could be so many people. Uh, <laughs> I'll uh, I'll continue to mull it over to see if yeah, anything I was comes Who's the guy that was in, in, uh, in Talking Dead a few times that they would bring him in? Oh, CM uh, Punk? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I'm fine with seeing CM Punk get slammed off a balcony at the end of a movie. <laughs> he actually, that'd be good. I mean, obviously, CM Punk is not jacked, but we could like form like uh, rewrite it to where he like cheats or he's really sneaky because Punk would be really good at a character that doesn't have a lot of dialogue but uh, has a few really good smarmy lines. Uh, for some reason, I can't get over the idea of Jessica Chastain being in the Samantha role. <laughs> I think that would be great. Oh my god, that's. I mean, sure. I, I would <laughs> she'd like be, she'd be the David Paymer of that movie, just classing it up. <laughs> we'll rewrite it so where Samantha has a little more dignity than the original one, but <laughs> and then and I know we get joked about Gary Oldman, but like we got to Ben Stiller as Brell. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I mean he would make it work. It would be it would be better written than it is right now, but 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 still, you could see Ben Stiller like pulling off the jockass line, like in a very like dry delivery. I think that would be, and then David Paymer would still just be his lackey. We'll bring back Charles <laughs> Levin and David Paymer to be the lackeys. Well, but no, because you need you need something for Josh Gad. So Josh Gad could be one of the lackeys, or Josh Gad could be Randy, the brother. <laughs> Yes. Because I guess him and Dwayne are just half-brothers. They just have yes. the same mom or something. There you go. Yeah. Everybody wants to see Josh Gad in a wheelchair. That... <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. We'd have a hard time getting that pulled off because you wouldn't want to have a scene where Josh Gad gets beat up. You'd be like, you know, running, no, towards the screen. <laughs> you know, that's the beauty of, of adapting and rebooting. It doesn't have to play exactly the same way. We can, for one, we can have Josh Gad kind of put up more of a fight. Yeah. And... uh you know, it doesn't have to be so brutal. Maybe he just kind of trips and falls and he breaks his back. He's uh, he's like running away and then yeah. like he looks behind and then he trips and falls and yeah. And then, yeah, Stan Hansen's still alive so he can still play his role. I'm fine with that. He come in and kick some ass. And that story I told was completely true in the first half of me asking him for a picture and him getting really annoyed and then telling the promoter <laughs> he wants a Butterfinger before he'll do anything. Why didn't you go get the Butterfinger? That would have gotten you on his good side. I wasn't working for that show. Plus, I it, we were like in this. I think it was like a was it like a church rec hall or something? And I I don't know where the fuck to get a butterfinger. It was a weird day. Moral of the story: always carry candy with you <laughs> if you're gonna meet Stan Hansen. All right, for those of y'all listening, when we get over all this shit and the fucking WrestleCon circus comes back, uh, WrestleCon circuit, excuse me. When you go to meet Stan Hansen, take him a butterfinger. And- <laughs> 
<laughs> Tell him the contrarian sent you. The contrarian sent you, and then he'll give you a big youth like he usually would. All right, so yeah, I'm I'm gonna go with D minus just because I have to give some some sort of props to Kurt Fuller and also um, the opening sequence. I've tweeted about this before. Um, I don't think I've ever mentioned this podcast. My favorite thing on this planet, besides getting laid, is professional wrestling that is recorded on film. Watching pro wrestling <laughs> that's been recorded on film is and i don't like i don't always mean in this sense like the old like we're talking like 40s and 50s pro wrestling like that shit and even before then like the earliest clips of wrestling were all on film like those cameras you had to crank like standing there to record it like early boxing um like we must preserve this for posterity yeah jack johnson era boxing and so i have some dvds that have restored that and being able to see like wrestling that was filmed like on film is so cool. And so when I was watching the Blu-ray of this and just the way it looks, I'm like, well, this is a cool novelty. And then Kurt Fuller's fun, but the rest of the movie is just utter trash. So D minus for me, uh, Julio, are you going to go with the big F for this one? Uh, yeah. The big, uh, half a star, I think. It's oh, just, dude, it's, I, it was not good. It was, I told you, it took me like three hours to watch it. I kept pausing and I can see somebody making the argument that that's why I, I didn't get it because I, I kept robbing it from momentum by pausing and just doing anything else I could think of. Uh, I would update our Instagram, our tweet. I would just do random Google searches and then I'll get back to the movie. <laughs> it it just doesn't. But but as we've established, I am not even close to the, the target audience. So I don't even have the, the little things that would help me get into the movie. Not a Hulk Hogan fan, not a pro wrestling fan. The closest I am is a David Paymer fan. And that's just, you know, that's barely there. That's the bridge. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember how much I I gave uh, Ready to Rumble, which might have gotten Elizabeth towned after <laughs> watching this movie. <laughs> I'm not going to revisit it to find out, but... If I gave Ray to Rumble one star, this one definitely gets half. If I gave Ray to Rumble half a star, well, this one gets also half a star, but it's worse. So, not a good movie. An interesting discussion and a, a nice distraction from everything else that's going on. <laughs> uh, is it free on Amazon Prime? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's, again, the maddest rule. I can't be mad at it. It doesn't waste my time. It's an hour and a half. There's a lot of interesting, you know, if you want to listen to this and then go and give it a watch or uh, listen to this and listen to Laps fan coverage of it and give it a watch. If, if you're a Hulk Hogan fan, you probably already watched it. Oh, absolutely. My biggest thing is if you're listening to this, well, hopefully you would be following my words. My hope for people that would want to watch it is they listen to this or beforehand so they can know all the absurdity going into it. And, you know, obviously we've spoiled the premise, but if you've seen a movie in your life, you know how this movie is going to play out. Um, I think this movie is a lot better to go into it. And unfortunately for yourself, Julio, I apologize. It probably, you probably would have gotten more enjoyment out of it. Had you known a lot of these things before going into it? I don't know about that, man. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm not going to say that the element of surprise made it more enjoyable, but it's, I, I mean, I told you, I knew about Dookie before I even got there. And it was just like, Oh yeah, just as bad as I expected. Well, much like ready to rumble. I'm, I'm disappointed that I couldn't provide that commentary track for you like I did with that movie. But uh, 
that's all right. I mean, it's not. I don't regret watching it because we are recording this episode. Uh, and if I hadn't had a podcast that I was watching the movie for, I wouldn't have finished it. So it's really, you know, it's a very specific set of circumstances, and uh, there's no regrets. This is incredible. I was just looking at the back of the Blu-ray, and um, you know, on like uh, physical media, how when they name a character, they'll put in parentheses the name and then what they're known for next to it. Right. Uh, so. When World Wrestling Champion Rip Thomas, and then parenthetically it says, WWE Hall of Famer Hulk Hogan, <laughs> and then we go down a little bit to, after a murdering ex-convict by the name of Zeus, Tommy Tiny Lister, The Dark Knight. <laughs> Doesn't even say Friday. Not even his most legendary performance. That's, but, you know. This was, uh, uh, the whole reason this got released was because uh, Vince got in his mind that he wanted to start making uh, WWE movies. So the WWE studios was a thing and they just made all these direct to home video movies with like their wrestlers in the lead. And they were just, they were more honest than this. They were just B level movies. So the actors they got to play parts in these movies consisted of Michael Rapaport, Bruce Dern, <laughs> Ed Harris, uh, Jamie Kennedy, which is obviously is a far cry from those. Uh, Parker Posey was in one. Danny Glover. So been some nice paychecks. Yeah, exactly. The the Bruce Dern one when that like the trailer for that movie came out, me and Reed like immediately texted each other like, "Fucking Bruce Dern." <laughs> oh, that that the biggest one I was forgetting. Obviously, the the man whom which we've named an award after, Ethan Embry, was in a movie with John Cena, <laughs> where they were brothers and Amy Smart played their sister. It sounds super hot. Uh, yeah. No thanks, but. <laughs> Because of that and that short-lived interest in Vince making movies with his wrestlers, I got no holds barred on Blu-ray, so I'm cool with it. It's out of production now. The Amazon I got it off of was like, you know, it was one of those X-Remain type things. And Anyway, a fascinating discussion to segue into an infinitely more fascinating WrestleMania, which during the course of recording, I read that they're going to tape it before the event, which is unprecedented will be the first WrestleMania in nearly 40 years that does not air live. So, what a time to be alive. You know, in the years, decades to come, eventually, you know, you foresee a handful, maybe more than a handful, uh, movies and documentaries dealing with the, the coronavirus crisis and all that stuff. And there has to be at least one that deals with just what happened to media, including WrestleMania, during these times. Yeah, would it be a documentary called like The Empty Ring or something? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, assuming the WWE Network's still around, they'll make their own original documentary about it. Well, they'll talk about how much of a visionary Vince was and a genius to run, and then the real documentary that it'll be, I don't know, Anderson Cooper or someone just being like, yeah, and then that <laughs> fucking idiot McMahon ran a show during this whole pandemic. <laughs> anyway, that was no holds barred. That was the legend of Rip Thomas, brother. And uh, winding down here, as always, we move into plugs. Uh, our perennial plugs being the festive years who provide our opening and closing tracks. They open us up with Last Stand, take us out with Summer of 99. Julio, who is the fearless Peruvian creator of our logo? Our logo was uh, created and executed by our fellow podcaster and friend, Hans Rothieser. Hans does a lot of stuff. He writes books. He has two podcasts. He does logos, obviously. Um, 
You can check out all his stuff at mildemonios.pe. That's M-I-L-D-E-M-O-N-I-O-S. You can contact him on Twitter uh, at Mildemonios. Email him at Hotmail, mildemonios at hotmail.com. His two podcasts are Nacion Combi, which is about Peruvian current affairs. That's on every podcatcher available. Um, And then he has Living in Peru, which is about immigrants to Peru. That's on iVox. And he has a new book out, which is uh, Requiem por Lurin. It's a zombie novel, third on a best-selling series. Check out his stuff. They're also quarantined in Peru. So he he might welcome (laughs) any sort of interaction with anybody, whether you speak English or Spanish. Uh, Hansroth speaks good enough English to record a message cursing us and damning us for reviewing The Fly. So he... (laughs) He can definitely hold up in English. Uh, Julio, are you familiar with um, a movie called Superstar, the Karen Carpenter story? I've heard of it. Okay. So I recently finally watched that. I've had that thing downloaded for fucking years and never got around to watching it, which is hilarious because I always uh, you know, harp on runtimes and that thing. It's a 45-minute movie. It's okay. The, the story behind it is interesting and the way it's made is interesting. So... If I understood correctly, it was like a uh, Todd Haynes was a guy who directed it. And I think it was a student project while he was going to film school in New York. And he just made a movie about Karen Carpenter and her struggles with anorexia and bulimia. And the fact that like she was this victim of stardom and, you know, her family pushed her to these dark places and she never really had the help she needed and eventually killed her. Um, The movie is made with Barbie dolls. So it's like. (laughs) You know, obviously their mouths aren't moving and things like that, and they do, but there's voiceovers and there's real life clips interspersed. Um, it's kind of just like a, a fever dream of a movie. I mean, it's fucking sad. I mean, she died from this, and you know, it, it in some ways could have been avoided. You know, we'll never know. It was a long ass time ago, but uh, she just didn't have the help she needed. And this movie, I think, kind of portrays that in a really interesting way. Um, but the more interesting part about it was dude just made this movie, used all this Carpenter's music in it, used all these names, likenesses, all that, and then just released it without getting any permission or like having the Carpenter's sign off on anything. So as soon as it was released, it was pretty much shut down. It's not like it went into like theaters, but it started getting distributed, you know, in certain circles and smaller art house theaters and things like that. And so immediately they shut it down because there's no way they were going to sign off on it to begin with. And then also the licensing with music and all that. And, so, of course, with the internet, I think it was one of the first tape trader things, like bootleg copies of it was were traded around and whatnot. And so you can't get an official quote-unquote copy of it anywhere, but there are bootlegs of DVDs. I torrented it. I'm pretty sure it's on YouTube or Dailymotion or you know Vimeo or one of those. It's 45 minutes. It's an interesting project. It's an interesting thing to watch. It gets kind of rough towards the end because like when I say they're made with Barbies – when her state deteriorated, I guess they basically just kind of sanded away the body parts of the Barbie they used to play her. So she's getting skinnier and skinnier. And Jesus. It's, yeah, it's pretty rough, but it's a, it's a good talking point, too. It's like, hey, have you ever seen this movie? Well, I know about it. So here's what it is. And this is what happened. So I watched it. So, I so found you it. trying to find uh, new icebreakers in the era of social distancing. Exactly. So when you go on your fucking uh, video dates now, when you meet people on Tinder and Hinge and Bumble, and you guys have to do like the Skype date, just lead with, hey, have you seen Superstar, the Karen Carpenter story? Like, that's what you need to start with. <laughs> They'll go like, uh, Superstar, never stop, never stopping? Uh, no. 
<laughs> that's Popstar. That's the sequel. And it stars uh, Andy Samberg instead of a Barbie doll. Son of Charles Levine, or Levin, excuse me. <laughs> Dude, seriously. Uh, uh, so, yeah, that's it's very easy to track down. It's very short, and uh, we have a lot of time on our hands right now. So give it a view. It's it's interesting. And Julio runs the Twitter on there, but if you end up uh, our, our personal or our brand Twitter, excuse me. But if you watch it and you want to discuss it with me, feel free to DM Julio will pass that along my way because I have some thoughts on it. <laughs> you know, it's crazy that, uh, I mean, Todd Haynes is an established filmmaker by now. And uh, I don't know that that he hasn't been able to figure out a way to distribute it properly, you know, officially. Uh, I wonder if it's just that he doesn't care enough or that the, the rights are just so entangled that it would be they, yeah, my understanding impossible. is they would never sign like the Carpenter estate would never sign off on it because it vilifies her family and basically says they could have like she could have lived if they helped her more. So my ah. understanding is like the the subject material is too intense for the subject to allow a full release of. Gotcha. Well, uh, on my end, just quickly, my plug is uh, for this Netflix reality show. You might have heard about it. People have been talking about it for months i guess since it came out in january and i heard about it i finally binged it with my wife because we were both home and we wanted something easy to watch i was like oh let's check out this reality show it's called the circle i don't know if, if it's popped up on your social media uh, <laughs> circles but it's just basically a bunch of strangers in a building and they only re- interact with each other via this uh social media platform called the circle so they never meet each other in person all they know is the profile photos that they're putting up and the their status changes and the things that they say to each other on private chats but it's not um you know they never know uh you know if the other person is being truthful and of course a lot of the of the participants aren't you know there's a guy that's pretending to be uh, a woman there's a, a nerdy guy that's married that's pretending to be this hot supermodel dude it's funny and I my reaction to it seems similar to a lot of people's uh, now that I've watched it, where you start watching it and looking down on these people because they come mm-hmm. in, for one, they come in really strong. They're like very over-the-top characters, you know, and they don't feel like real people. Uh, but then the whole thing is like 12 episodes and as things go and and some people get kicked out and new people come in and relationships are formed you actually start caring. And and so I was surprised that, you know, a couple episodes in, I was actually invested to where I wanted some people to uh, to not be kicked out. But more importantly, I didn't want them to get hurt whenever they found out that somebody they were connecting with was not truthful. <laughs> and uh, and that expands, you know, over over 12 episodes. So it's it was it was really fascinating. It's, it's an easy watch. You know, it's it's if you've ever been hooked on a reality show, it's that kind of experience. You don't have to think too much about it, but the the twists and turns are pretty captivating, and uh, and especially uh, at this time where so many of us are just now communicating remotely. I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. we are hopefully being pretty truthful about what we put forward, but the idea that you know, I don't know how many people are spending time interacting with strangers, uh, and they have to take what they say online at face value, but it's it's it has that extra relevancy. But yeah, a fun to watch. I think if you have like, I don't know, two days to spare, you can binge the, the whole season in two parts, which is basically what we did. <laughs> nice. All right. So that's going to do it for our bonus WrestleMania episode. And yes, there will be a WrestleMania to come this weekend. So uh, enjoy whatever that 
is. It could change a lot in the next few weeks before this actually gets uploaded. But uh, I'm assuming you're you're planning to watch it, right? Oh yeah, of course. But, <laughs> well, I don't know. No, yeah, I, uh, no. I should have said you're planning to watch it live, or you know, not live, but whenever it airs. Yeah, no, uh, it's not like you're putting it off and then watching it later. No, 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 no. I'll try to avoid spoilers if I can, as far as if it is being uh, pre-recorded, but we'll see. But whatever the case, that concludes this episode of The Contrarians. Uh, what comes next chronologically? I, I think we're on to The Hangover 3. Oh, oh hell yeah. I like that. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So that'll be the next time we come your way. Uh, in the meantime, we appreciate y'all, as always, for tuning into The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we will catch you next time. That's some of the